And the problem is many people lure someone into a relationship thinking that they're using one lure when really there's another one. Like, oh, I think he loves my personality. When, oh, he loved that I was youth, youthful and um, very attractive. Or he loved that I was high status. And then that ends and everything falls apart. You pair off with someone because they want to work with you to become a better version of yourself. So it's a complete refutation of this concept of someone loving you for who you are, which we find to be pathetic and sad. Ready Player One. It's interesting because that, that was framed in a book as this like futuristic society where, you know, people are sort of shut up in these like stacked upon stacked upon trailers in this post-apocalyptic society, spending most of their time online. But like, ooh, we're kind of there. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. This week I'm speaking with Simone Collins, the co-founder of pronatalist.org and the co-author of the Pragmatist Guide series. If those sound familiar, that's because her co-founder and co-author and husband, Malcolm Collins, was on the show just a few months ago. Simone and I discuss evolutionary mismatch, the sacred, atomization, social justice, boomers, self-deception, and parasocial relationships. We especially go into many of the social games that occur both on the interpersonal level and on the digital level, which I think many of you will find incredibly interesting. I certainly did. The best thing you can do if you like the show is to suggest it to someone who you know. There's nothing like a personal recommendation, and the odds are, if you have someone who has similar interests, who have similar hobbies, then not only are you helping us out by sharing the show, but you're also giving that person something interesting and fun to listen to. Without further ado, enjoy the show with Simone Collins. Are we in a time of evolutionary mismatch? I would say... What is is evolutionary mismatch? Because I would argue we're always evolving. And there may be pressures that we have not yet evolved to adapt to well, but we'll get there. I mean, a lot of people might not make it through that little choke point, but we'll get there. Right. The main idea is that uh, the pace of change is uh, outspeeding the typical processes of evolution, right? So many of uh, your, or like everyone's evolved instincts evolve over really hundreds, thousands of years. And the, the rate at which technological change has changed what is successful, what instincts actually work. I think this relates to a lot of what you talk about in your books, uh, that that has created an environment where basically a lot of behaviors people have, very common behaviors that people have, are uh, increasingly maladaptive. Oh, but that's where culture comes in, right? Because culture works in tandem with biological evolution to enable us to adapt to these environments faster than just pure life or death would enable us to. So, you know, a spider is only able to evolve by, you know, the spiders that don't fit with this new evolutionary pressure, um, they die. And then the ones that can live. Whereas with culture, with technology, with ideas, we're able to adapt much more quickly. So the real question is, you know, how can we develop better memes and better cultures to adapt to these things? And there has certainly been an acceleration of technology recently that forces us to move more quickly or to which we really need to build better culture um, to help us adapt to it. But that's OK. It'll, it'll work out. We have the technology. 
Right. That's interesting. So one great way to explore this, you know, for the audience uh, is, is to talk about some of the ideas in uh, one of your books, uh, The Pragmatist Guide to Relationships. So so you talk about lures, right, which is essentially this way of trying to uh, trying to uh, find a date or trying to find a, find a long term relationship, so on and so forth. So so what are lures? The lure is the value proposition that you as a person sell to someone else as the basis of your relationship. So a lure may be that you are a very high status and famous person and you attract people based on that status. Or it could be that you are very young and attractive, or it could be that you are very smart and you entertain someone. Um, but you have to be very aware of the lure that you use to bring someone in, because if that changes and the value proposition of your relationship falls apart, then you've got a relationship that is inherently unsustainable. So if a man, for example, lures a woman into a relationship based on dominance, he's going to have to maintain frame. He's going to have to maintain that dominance for the entire relationship or else find a way to give a different value proposition to his partner to maintain the relationship that is equally valuable to that partner or the relationship will fall apart. And the problem is many people lure someone into a relationship thinking that they're using one lure when really there's another one, like, oh, I think he loves my personality. When, oh, he loved that I was youth, youthful and um, very attractive, or he loved that I was high status. And then that ends and everything falls apart. Right, right. So you talk about basically two or three types of lures or three categories of lures, let's say, which are kind of the um, the effective ineffective and kind of deceptive lures, hmm. right? Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. So, so uh, let's go through each of these. And then the question that I think most interested me in this, in this section is why the kind of ineffective lures still exist. Ah, uh, well, I think people are really, really willing to lie to themselves for a long time. And some ineffective lures last for a long time, like the lure of, attractiveness or youth lasts for one's entire youth you right. know, or until like the kids are out and they've graduated from college and then the husband leaves the lifelong housewife for a much younger model because that social contract is kind of broken down. <laughs> um, I would say any any individual value proposition can be made sustainable so long as you are aware that that's the value proposition. The problem is that Basically, any lore is ineffective if you're not aware that that's the lore, and then you're you're unable to protect that to maintain the structural integrity of your relationship. Just know know what your value is, know why people like you, and protect that as long as you want to protect the relationship. Right. I actually think so. This is something that's really interesting to me too. Uh, I don't think that that's actually very easy, right? And I'm not sure that you do either. Uh, so, so you kind of talk in the book about basically being very clear and explicit about what you want in a relationship. And uh, yeah, like you said, know your own value, know what you're able to offer. And I think for many people, for various reasons, that's actually quite difficult, right? It's actually quite difficult to come to an understanding of what you as a person can offer and also what you like actually want the most. Yes, that is true to a great extent. Um, and I think for that reason, most people going forward, a majority of people will probably remain uncoupled for a long time, or people will learn how to develop the emotional maturity required to do this. 
Um, but I do think that we're going to see more and more people who just never end up in long-term stable relationships um, because not even that they don't know what they want to bring to the table or what they want from someone else, but because their standards are unreasonable. Mm, yes. Okay. So I'm sure that there's no one in my audience who is uh, single and uh, feeling sad and feeling like they don't know uh, what they can, what they can offer. But let's say hypothetically there was, okay. Let's say hypothetically <laughs> there was, let's, let's write like the hidden chapter to uh, the pragmatist guide to uh, relationships. How do you, what's the kind of like process in which you actually develop an understanding of what you have to offer? Um, I mean, I think actually people are pretty, pretty good at determining this. You know, are you, are you smart? Are you funny? Are you wealthy? Um, are you very good at making people feel good about themselves? Sometimes all that someone really wants from a relationship is someone who pays attention to them and makes them feel validated. So that's not particularly hard to offer to other people. Um, sometimes people just want stability. Sometimes people just want someone to raise kids with. So you have to be aware of what you're willing to do. Am I willing to raise kids with someone? Am I willing to date someone who I don't find particularly attractive, but they won't find me particularly attractive and that's okay. Um, you know, I think it's like, I know what I look like. Um, and I know that I am very socially awkward. So when I decided at age 24 for the first time that I was going to start dating, because I'd never done it before, I'm way too autistic to figure that out. Um, but I needed to do it just to say that I tried it. Um, I, I knew that I wasn't going to get by on looks. I knew that I wasn't going to get by on social experience or, a you know, skill. So I stuffed my online dating profile with as many internet memes as I possibly could. I bought <laughs> film grade stormtrooper armor. I posed in it with a caption of paint me like your French women. And I went to town. Um, I lived in Silicon Valley at the time. There were, you know, I knew my target audience. So like, you know, you gotta like know your target audience. I was targeting nerdy internet guys. Um, I used nerdy internet memes to show them that I could speak their language. And I also played, um, some market arbitrage games by like doing a lot of outreach as a female because females don't typically do that on dating platforms. Um, to, to gain an advantage. Um, and I love, I love arbitrage games. Like my, I, I do feel like these days dating markets are quite broken. Um, but I still think that there are many clever solutions to this. Like, have you heard of transmaxing? This is my new obsession. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately what is I've been wrong on, on Twitter. Okay. Okay. Explain to the audience what transmaxing is. So transmaxing is, is, um, <laughs> In response, so someone, there's a, there's a subreddit called Transmaxing where you can sort of dive into this sub community if you should be so tasteful to do so because it's amazing. You shouldn't ignore it. Um, and there's one post where someone asks like, you know, this actually seems, is this a joke? Is this a real community? Like, are these people? And someone, someone posted, this is about male to female transition for personal gain. And that's what it is. Um, so basically, um, it's mostly incel males um, who kind of realize that the game has been rigged against them. You know, they're maybe like they're below a five on like in the dating market value wise. So they're going to be in cells for life unless they change something significant. And the conclusion they come to basically is if you can't beat them, join them. Like I will become a female, like through, like all the way, like surgery, um, uh, hormonal 
hormone replacement therapy. Um, and I, I love it. Like they're not, they're, they're not trans in, in some traditional ways. Like they don't experience gender dysphoria. Um, but as one person on the subreddit describes it, uh, it's gender euphoria, which I just love. It's like, you know what? <laughs> Women have it easier right now. Like, as, as, like people post like, well, you know, like when, now that I've transitioned, people smile to me on the street. You know, people are nice to me. My career is easier. Um, and I just, I find that arbitrage game, like that is next level. That is so next level. I deeply admire it. And so people are finding really interesting solutions. And I don't think you should discount what's happening here. Um, you know, with, with dating markets breaking as much as they are, transmaxing is in the top 10% of subreddits ranked by size. Like this is not a nothing thing. There are a lot of people just saying, this is so broken. I think I'm going to become a woman and it kind of works out for many of them. I'm not saying this is, I'm not endorsing this per se. I'm not saying you should go out and become a woman. If you have trouble finding girls as a guy, there are many ways that you can do this. Um, but I find it very indicative because the way that dating markets have shifted now, um, really only the top 20% or even 10% of men in terms of um, not just looks, but like maybe looks, wealth, and smarts are getting the vast, vast, vast majority of the women. And this is bared out in, in the data that various dating platforms share. Um, and what that means is we, we've really gone to a polygamous society where a very small number of men are pairing off with a very large number of women. Um, they're not even pairing off. Like the women aren't necessarily securing them for any long-term relationship. Um, and this, it's interesting to me because we are kind of going back to, um, human mating patterns that we've seen throughout history that kind of like is even shown through genetic data that like a large number of the male population throughout history is not, has not reproduced. Um, and so I, it just, it's really interesting to me how yet at this point in human history, when we've reached this, this point at which there's a highly polygamous society again, where only a few men are able to pair off with most of the women that a lot of the remaining men uh, are just deciding to become women. Um, it, it's, it seems it's a very offensive concept, but it's also to me, it just seems so common sense. Like, okay, like this is one way we can, you know, resolve this, this market inefficiency. Let's try it. Right. Right. I think it's pretty common sense that would happen. Like, you know, the quote, I think it's soul uh, subsidize anything. You'll get more of it. Right. I, I think like the reason why, it's offensive, right? It's that people, that, that there are still these kind of persistent myths that a lot of dating is about, you know, it's about the sacred, it's about, you know, um, your kind of romance story. Uh, this is especially, I think it's interesting, right? Because it's there's a kind of horseshoe theory here where it's like these kind of myths are the strongest on like the extreme social justice left and like the extreme religious right, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, where, where these stories are, are turned into sacred and then they don't want to admit kind of like, like you said, obvious arbitrages that are there. Um, yeah, this actually is a very interesting sub issue that I think I want to jump into, which is like Robin Hansen, Robin Hansen has wrote, written these articles on the sacred, right? Where he talks about basically people uniting by seeing common things as far away, even if they're not, right? As things that basically can't be touched or can't be really reasoned about. Hmm. Um, and it seems like, it seems like this is pretty related to, pretty related to the bro breaking of dating markets, right? A lot of areas that are most broken are revolving around these kind of sacred, um, 
sacred myths that can't really be challenged, at least not by, you know, most people. Um, so what do you think, do, do you, first of all, actually, do you think that that connection is there? I should ask that before I go further. Um, if I understand what you're saying, I think that people see romance, love and pairing as a sacred institution for sure. Um, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. Both that they see it as sacred and that compels them basically not to reason about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually think I think we see that even among highly rational people um, who who profess to want to date very logically, who profess to want to find a partner for, you know, very value aligned reasons. And then, you know, we like Malcolm and I have even tried informal matchmaking experiments to help match our high caliber friends with each other. If they have aligned values and goals and locations as a couple, you know, like technically on paper, they should be right for each other. Um, even in terms of more surface level preferences like height. And yet we show them pictures of each other and they're like, mm, meh. you know, like they, there is something more there. They expect a spark um, or they expect some kind of different narrative that, that is supposed to work out for them. And our current culture doesn't really support that. It's super interesting. Right. I actually, hmm, I don't know, maybe it is just because I'm on the kind of tail end of both kind of, yeah, I think at this point I'm on the tail end of both kind of like technical ability and also in terms of like basically storytelling, just just having that kind of experience doing podcasting, doing these kind of events. But from my perspective, at least, also this is true of my friends as well, not just me. Um, I don't think I don't think looks are that deterministic at all, um, in, at least in terms of at least for men. It's uh, not. Oh no, definitely not. No, and it, it's not just looks. It's also sh social ability, uh, general smarts, career attainment, status, and money. But there are lots of people who don't have any of those things. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's. I mean that that's kind of true in that, like, yeah, you you can just like keep defining things, right, and say like people don't have. So okay. So so. Is the claim that like most men do not have the ability to attain either smarts or or social ability as well? Yeah, that well, the, and like... that and when you look at most modern dating platforms, um, they're very, very image focused, meaning that right. even if there were some dimension um, on which you could compete very effectively in more traditional dating markets or even a dating market like 10 to 15 years ago, that's not going to show up for the vast majority of people looking. Um, so, you know, even if you could be like the top table tennis player and like totally get all the girls that way, like no one's seeing that now because no one's hanging out in person in, as much anymore. And, um, you know, they're just looking at like two pictures of you before swiping um, on Tinder or some other image-based app. And almost all the apps have gone image-based. Though, of course, there are like affinity-based apps based around religions or based around, you know, like farmersonly.com. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's, those are niche networks and that it's a different kind of thing. So yeah, it's, I think it's also though, and, and this is what I think is a much more important thing that people don't talk about as much is everyone's BATNA is super high. Um, so BATNA stands for best alternative to negotiated offer. Um, and th that for most people is life as a single person forever. And as much as people talk about incels and know oh, the misery, like honestly, 
um, you know, my original plan when going into dating was to to fall in love, have my heart broken, and just totally live alone forever. Because quite honestly, being alone is awesome. And I had absolutely no interest in giving up any of my personal autonomy to join forces with someone else, let alone have kids. Um, and I think, honestly, when people are looking at, okay, either I have to, you know, come to terms with what my actual value is and not get this amazing person that I think I would like to have, but I can't get because of my current level of wealth, attractiveness, um, smarts, whatever it may be. Right. Um, or I could live alone forever and, um, you know, in, enjoy a very satisfying life, a very enriching and fulfilling life. If I play things right, why, why would they pair off? You know, that you or also in many cases, people are at a local maximum, you know, like things, things are really nice and they probably could have a much, much better life if they did ultimately pair off with someone and have kids. But there's so much work involved in adjusting to life with someone else. Um, and, and starting that and making sacrifices that people just can't really bring themselves to do it. You know, like after you get out of bed on a cold morning and you start with your day, like it's okay, but getting out of bed is so freaking hard. Um, so I think that's, that's also what's happening with, with technology, with the internet. It's just not as appealing. You don't need a relationship or a spouse as much anymore. I, I actually just don't think that this is the case. I mean, like it's the case in like, okay. I'm going to monologue for like five minutes. Uh, but, but I think that, yeah, I think that's really what has happened. What is like so stunning to me when I'm just comparing, you know, like immigrant and non-immigrant communities in the West is that like, I think like the stigmatization of dependency just makes like terrible, broken people. Like the number, like I am to, to a large degree dependent on, on like two friends and like when, when I'm in a relationship, like a romantic relationship, I'm pretty dependent in, in that scenario as well. Right. I, I think that like a lot of the time people don't really recognize how much of their, um, how, how much of their needs would benefit from being basically like routinized and taken out of their own control. Like there's a lot of, it's hard to extrapolate this to the general population, right? Like I can only kind of give anecdotal examples of this, of people basically being like, you know, like they're in a situation and they don't know who to call. They don't know like whether there's someone they can rely on, whether that's a family member or a friend, they need help with, you know, various kind of snap judgments. They have no kind of extended network. Uh, I think in, and this is only going to, like, the benefit of this is only going to decrease, or sorry, is only going to increase as you move down the kind of, uh, down in levels of cognitive ability, right? You, you, you can expect to get more from people, um, the less you are capable of, or the, the fewer problems you're capable of resolving on your own. And simultaneously, right, a lot of the kind of fulfillment that people can get in their own life is also basically helping other people right, is basically engaging in these kind of social acts. That, I think, is just sort of, you know, by by their own admission is the the kind of preference of many people is to actually, you know, go out and help, uh, help people. But, you know, this is kind of my most right-wing view, right? My most right-wing view is basically that, like, atomization is completely, like, that atomization is basically, like, 
one of the most destructive things that you can do, that you can do to people in terms of kind of changing their uh, their ability to even just go through and accomplish the ordinary tasks of their life. But what if we're just evolving? Back to that theme at the beginning of our conversation. What if okay, in the face of technology, we are reaching a new way of interacting collectively, individually, um, unidirectionally, or one to in one to many with the rest of the world? Um, so, you know, you say you rely on a couple of people um, for these, you know, deep fulfilling relationships and for their advice and insights, and they probably kind of keep you intellectually sharp. Um, that's, that's fine. Like, and, and I do think that there's a world for that, you know, like the, the top social networks and, and sources of information used by people outside many developed countries are Facebook and WhatsApp. These are, these are, you know, group based, um, social media and sorry, social network based communication methods. They're not using Google. They're not using Wikipedia. Um, we learned this from um, a friend named Charlie Grosso who runs a nonprofit called Hello Future, where she goes to refugee camps, um, primarily Syrians, I think are the ones that she started with, like Syrian refugee camps. Um, and she would work on teaching internet literacy, um, basic project management skills, entrepreneurial skills to youth in those communities so that they could start their own businesses, build their own income streams. It's great, super empowering, right? And you'd think like, oh, okay, well, you know, like they're, they're teaching them how to, you know, be, be more intentional about the way that they raise money or things like that. No, no, no. She's just like teaching them how to basically use Google, like how to basically access the internet as you and I know it. And that's because the internet for them has mostly been WhatsApp group, Facebook, things like that. So yeah, I do think that there is this, um, this world in this future or this present even that many people in developed countries are not super aware of that is really based on families and peer networks. And then it's all about those close tight knit relationships often of which are familiar. So I'm not going to discount that. I'm going to say that's real. I'm going to say that's powerful. And I'm going to say that's definitely a part of the future, but there's this other part of the future where I would say the power of parasocial relationships and weird, like internet based relationships come through. So you You've spoken with me now for like, I don't know, 30 minutes. Like, this is your relationship with me. This is how much you know me. But I have this parasocial relationship with you, Brian. I've had hours of very interesting conversations with you through your podcast. This is I mean, like, it's going to creep you out, right? But like, I feel like I know you. You know, I have this whole relationship with you that you are completely unaware of. Because I have this parasocial relationship with you through your podcast. And throughout the day while I'm working, I, I have YouTube videos playing where people comment on stuff and talk about their personal life. And I have, you know, they have zero awareness that I exist, but I have these deep relationships with them where I know about their childhood traumas and I hear them talk about their wins and their losses. And that gives me a feeling. And like, it certainly, I'm sure exercises parts of my brain that say, aha, you are with the tribe. You are communing with the others. And yet, um, I don't have to interact with them in person at all. Um, and I, I think that that's interesting. We also have these sort of hybrid parasocial relationships where there are friends that we see in person every other month. We invite over for dinner. Um, but primarily, um, I know them through their Substack, through their podcast, through their YouTube channel. Um, and that's, and then they primarily know us through our books and through our other publications. Um, so I feel like we're entering this age in which it is very possible to have a very vibrant, fulfilling social life. Um, and yet to not necessarily interact on a regular back and forth, tete-a-tete -tete personal relationship basis with someone. 
Um, and this is all made possible by the internet and the various means by which we can sort of develop these interesting one way or partially one way or hybrid relationships with people. So I would, I would just say, don't discount that. You can have, you can have a very satisfying social life and be very alone. Right, right. This is, this is the kind of internal conflict that I have, right? Because this is, like, I believe pretty strongly in revealed preferences at the same time, right? Like, how I push back on, like, the, the this kind of, like, the right-wing version of this idea is I'm like, you know, it's not like, it's not like the atomization is constructed, right? It's not like the, the atomization is top-down. It's actually that people have these revealed preferences, right? Mm-hmm. That they actually want this. I have this line. Actually, this, maybe for, like, the Twitter followers, this will be good. I have this line that I talk about, right? Once in a while, I'll just post, like, I'll, I'll quote tweet something and just say the most beautiful flowers are all the most fake. And what I mean by that is a lot of the time people's revealed preferences are for the fake version of the thing, right? There's a kind of assumption. And in some cases, this is true, I think. But there's an assumption that I think goes more to it or that goes like that overgeneralizes where people assume that like the real is better than the fake, mm. right? Like, mm-hmm. you're always go- going to want, like, the real version of human interaction, not, like, the fake one. Mm-hmm. Actually, I had this exchange, I had this exchange in private with Rob Henderson. I'll, I'll, I'll cut this out if, uh, if he doesn't want to, uh, but if he doesn't want me to talk about it publicly, but I'm pretty sure he, he's fine with it. Where, where I asked him, like, hey, would you be interested in, like, helping me build a version of ChatGPT, which is just, like, very good at, like, understanding people's psychological motives and making them feel warm and happy. And he says, only if people know that it's a bot doing it. And I say, I say, not only will people uh, prefer, or like, not only will people not be afraid of the bot version, but they will prefer it. Oh, yeah. Because they don't have the same kind of social risk. They're not afraid of offending someone. They're not afraid of breaking someone's heart. They're not afraid of a kind of permanent relationship. It's just kind of always there, ephemeral. And, And like... The conflict, right, is that that is simultaneously, in my view, that is simultaneously like the actual revealed preference of people, right, is to have these parasocial relationships, but is like not actually what is good for them in terms of their ability to do things. Yeah, no, I I agree that if we're talking about being a functional human and having an impact on the world, yeah, it definitely matters. Um, But, you know, I think there's also this dichotomy, culturally speaking, between having values, thinking through those values, knowing what you value and, and, and trying to maximize it, and then being comfortable. And most of people today just care about hedonic comfort. So I'm talking about, you know, how to optimize around their interests and needs. I personally, uh, as you can probably tell, because as much as I would probably hedonically prefer to be alone and living in a hermit-like existence, um, and yet I am married and I have three children and I want to have as many more as I possibly can, that I don't believe in taking the the hedonic path in life. I believe in taking the meaningful path in life. Um, but that's that's just not our culture, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess it depends on what we're trying to maximize for. Are we trying to maximize for meaning, impact, um, furthering the human mankind? Like, or are we trying to to maximize for uh intragenerational comfort? Um, I Malcolm and I obviously think that the only people who matter are those who are willing to step back from hedonic pleasure and focus on that which matters, whatever they believe matters we don't care but you know to focus on something more important than comfort 
but that's just not that's not the majority of humans right now. Right, right. There's this idea that the people who will create the future are whoever can step out of the Skinner box, right? I think that's yeah. a line from Mary Harrington. Oh, fine. Uh, yeah. What's interesting is like this. This is something that shapes the shapes the kind of ruling ideologies of the present, right? It's like the the ability to motivate people strongly enough over the baseline of basically material comfort to do something politically is is kind of like the shaping factor of ruling ideology, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have you have both social justice on the left and you have like MAGA on the right, populism, and like whether you think those things are like true or false, right? You anyone in my audience has to be able to admit that those are kind of like incredibly powerful emotional forces. Right. And they're they're mostly powerful because of fear. They're mostly powerful because they can kind of create this kind of biological um, force that is much more, which is much more compelling or that is even more compelling than like the just complacency and just, you know, hedonism. Right. So it might be the case. Yeah. It might be the case that like the consequence of basically hedonism is, um, is is ruled by like the most fearful and paranoid people. Well, I, I don't. I don't think Malcolm actually brought this up when he spoke with you. But the the conclusion he's come to when it comes to the primary difference between super progressive culture and super conservative culture, or just progressive and conservative cultures in general, is that progressive cultures optimize for intragenerational well being. So how are you feeling yeah. now? How is how is your personal life? How, you know, let's let's get as many living people as comfortable as, as possible. Um, whereas conservatives are looking at intergenerational well-being. You know, how can we protect our culture? How can we keep mankind thriving for generations and generations? Um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't I didn't bring this up when I was talking to him. I didn't even realize this. Maybe I even agreed with him. Hmm. But I, actually, now that I'm hearing this again. This seems obviously false, right? False. Like, it's a very well-known. It's a very well-known statistic that kind of like liberals are much more uh, have much higher rates of depression than conservatives, right? Like oh, in general, the ideology is much. Yeah, but more we'd argue depressive. like the more you obsess over happiness and trying to be happy and happiness for happiness' sake, the more likely you are to be depressed. I mean, just because you care about happiness, right, but what mean does you get happiness it. have to do with like racial conspiracy theories, right? What what does happiness have to do with this kind of like grandiose vision of making everyone equal? Like that doesn't actually make people happy. Well, yeah, but it's it's short sightedness that we think creates those negative effects as emergent properties. I, I I do think that addressing issues like you know people's feelings and preferences and social justice in general is about improving quality of life now. But it's not a kind of. It's a kind of like crusading ideology in kind of like Eric Hoffer's terms, right? It's an ideology that basically um, makes extremely high demands of its adherents. If it were a kind of if it were a kind of um, hedonistic ideology, wouldn't it more be like something like libertarianism, right? Where it's not demanding that its 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 adherents make such strong commitments to you know whatever the social justice group is of the day. No, I don't think so. Because the, the the predominating meme, at least as we see it, of social justice culture as it exists now, the value proposition of it is 
we will protect you from suffering. And that includes hurt feelings, that includes hurting other people's feelings. And that requires an immense amount of effort and control over other people to make sure that that doesn't happen. So libertarian approaches really don't don't approach that because libertarian approaches let bad things happen. Let people hurt other people's feelings. Um, let people um, succumb to the the suffering of their circumstances um, or, you know, leave them to figure their own way out of problems. Whereas the progressive approach is to more try to intervene earlier, make a difference, save people and stop other people from potentially hurting people. Right, right. So it's more of a kind of, um, it's more of a kind of uh, prevention. It's more of like loss prevention rather than kind of, positive, positive hedonism. Hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, negative utilitarianism, you know, that the suffering is way more than the, you know, way more important than any potential good or, um, joy that someone might have. So let's, let's focus first on stopping all suffering and then we can focus on maybe good things after that. Yeah. Okay. That I see as sort of, uh, yeah. So if you're just trying to minimize even the kind of slightest amount of suffering, um, yeah, I can kind of see, see that reading. There, there are still a few inconsistencies, but I think that makes more sense than the kind of simple, simple hedonism version. So, so something that's pretty interesting here is that, like, there, there's kind of a tension here between two things. And I think, like, one of those things is the sort of, uh, cultural understanding of evolution and the kind of, you know, genetic or kind of like biological evolution, right? Where we talked about it, this, or I talked about this with Malcolm in the context of politics, but I think it's interesting also to look at this in dating as well, where there's the kind of cultural mismatch where, you know, all of these strategies that you talk about, whether it's sort of uh, pretending or like emphasizing how much uh, you love the other person or emphasizing kind of uh, or or trying to pretend to be more uh, in the case of a male, more effeminate, right? There are all these strategies that either no longer work or fail to accomplish whatever the goal actually is in the present and that persist nonetheless, right? So, so do you think like those ineffective, those ineffective lures are uh, evolutionary or are they cultural or like what is the dominant factor there? I think the dominant factor is people are working on default mode and not thinking intentionally about what they're doing. It's it's nothing more complicated than that. People conserve energy both in terms of thought and, you know, actual like calorie burning. Right. Right. Finding mm. a partner takes a lot of work. If you don't live in a society that handles it for you and for the most part we don't have societal institutions outside of like Mormon singles wards or, you know, matchmaking services in some communities that actually help to set you up. It takes a lot of work to find a partner. I mean, I like (laughs) when I decided that I needed to fall in love and have my heart broken, um, I, I knew that I wasn't very motivated to go out and date people because that's horrifying. So I set up a competitive dating like 
league in my office, which of course was a massive HR violation, but woohoo, it was a startup. So there was no HR. Haha, <laughs> take that. Um, so, you know, it was like, you know, this many points for second base, this many points for a date that lasted longer than X hours. That really got me going. Um, but like I had to do that and I had to like build some kind of game into it just to be able to tolerate how stressful it was to go on dates. And when I met Malcolm, uh, he was like my second date in that one day. You know, you have to like pack them in. Malcolm had set for himself a date to go, or sorry, a, a goal of going on at least one date every weeknight and multiple dates every weekend day. I mean, we treated this like it was a job and it really was a second job. Um, even though we had different goals, you know, my goal was just to fall in love. His goal was just to find a wife at some point, but you know, I think most people aren't up for this. I and mean, we have many people reach out to us about our relationships and sexuality books and ask for dating advice. And we give it to them and they're like, uh, no, I'm just going to like write up what I want more. You know, like I'm just going to think about it more, write about it more. And like we do not hear people going out and trying that hard because, again, their BATNA is high. The Like the alternative of being sing single forever is really high. Porn is great. You know, um, you, you can you can get a lot of stuff done through um, parasocial relationships. You can feel like you have a lot of friends. So just people are going to try anymore, Brian. Right. So should we just ban Twitch and porn? Oh, don't ban porn. Should oh my god! Also, ban podcasts like ban or like ban this no, podcast I know. specifically. No, like I, I see. I don't think like this. This stuff isn't necessarily bad. I think we need to build new cultural institutions to make matching matchmaking easier. Like in our in the Pragmatist's Guide to Crafting Religion, we we muse over recreating the London season. You are probably not the kind of person who reads historical romance novels, but. Unfortunately, um, I'm not. Oh, I'm so sorry, Brian. You were missing out. But um, it, like during during a certain period in in uh, British history, there was um there was essentially a season in London. They called it the season um, where young, eligible, um, high class families would bring their eligible daughters and sons um, in to be presented to the royal family, but also to have a series of dances and balls. And like the idea was that they would meet each other and get married. And sort of there was this understanding that, you know, when you were mixing at these parties, you were looking for a spouse. This was a matchmaking activity. Um, and we're like, hey, you know what? We should probably bring something like that back. Um, something similar kind of exists with the LDS church. They have these things called singles wards. Are you familiar with them? Uh, not really. Um, so they're, they're basically a, a, a church, a, a Sunday service. Um, or I know what the, I, I know what the, uh, the LDS is. Yeah. No. Yeah. So the, you know what the LDS church was, is, but they have, so, um, a, a local LDS church, you know, like, let's say like, oh, like this one in, in my town or whatever. Um, they'll have multiple services every Sunday because they may not be able to fit everyone in the community. So they have like the one service that starts at 10 a.m., one that starts at 8 a.m., whatever. Um, many of these churches have what are called singles wards. So everyone who attends that service and maybe some activities afterward, they are all single young people looking for a spouse. So that's, a, I mean, imagine that. Imagine that you could go to something every week and hang out with a bunch of people who share your general values and metaphysical understanding of the world and who want to have the same kind of lifestyle, um, who, you know, are all looking for a spouse. Um, that's an awesome cultural institution that helps to match make people. Um, and it, it works, it works pretty effectively. And I know people who met each other at single swords and, and got married and are in very happy, satisfied marriages. We don't have things like that anymore. So yeah, Malcolm and I have discussed things like we'll bring back the season and stuff, but you know, as it stands, 
if people are going to try to find a spouse using traditional methods, either using dating platforms or just like literally reaching out to people on Twitter, reaching out to people on LinkedIn, which I've heard by by some standards are much better effective dating mecker, dating uh, <laughs> platforms these days. And I, I totally dig it. Um, you know, if you're not willing to do that, you're just not going to end up with a partner. And that it's a lot of effort and it's more effort than most people are willing to expend. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I do know a friend who has tried dating on LinkedIn. Uh, How's it I working out? I think this out? would only work for a girl, though. She, she is a girl. Uh... Um, I, don't, I don't think this would work for men. I think like this is like a very easy way to get like banned from LinkedIn if you're... <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, this is... This is interesting, though, because, okay, okay, this is something that I'm very, very used to doing, which is um, attacking libertarianism from within libertarianism. <laughs> okay, so, so there's this idea, right, there, there's this idea that, like, we can just wait for the bottom-up institutions to come, and I think in many scenarios that's not the case, right? Like, we already talked about how in many cases the revealed preferences is just to, you know, just to have a parasocial relationship or to have many parasocial relationships, to be, you know, basically, um, to be basically single and not even try, not even try to solve the problem at all, right? Like, it's simply the case that for most people, a lot of their decision making is determined by, you know, either social pressure, or in many cases, legal pressure. And when those kind of, and it's not like that, this is already a neutral ground, right? We have HR laws that are uh, discouraging certain kind of like, very, like, previously mainstream and normal behaviors. Richard Hanania has an article about this. I think something like how they how they made heterosexuality illegal or something hmm. like that, right? And this is just not a neutral ground, right? In order to have the ability to have something like a season or something like, um, well, certainly something like the Church of the Latter-day Saints, you have to have a very strong force of social co- coercion. And that has to come basically as you know a pressure on the individual freedoms it has to come as a pressure on you know the ability for people to you know either either you know choose to live uh, choose to live in a kind of parasocial um single single lifestyle to basically like painfully stigmatize them right yeah yeah i guess i mean you know this is all opt-in stuff you know you can choose to be a member of the lds church or not you can choose to you know if if malcolm and i succeed in creating the new season, you can choose to opt into that or not. Um, it's kind of up to you. Right, right. But the the problem is, right, like... That people won't join it if they don't feel shamed into doing so? Not only, not only that, but in order for these kind of things to be continual, in order for them not to be basically you know, short-term flash-of-the-pan things, I think there has to be some kind of inductive function and inductive mm-hmm. function, you know, going back to, uh, to my conversation with Malcolm, right. That inductive function has to use some sort of social coercion. Otherwise it's just not able to grow itself. Yeah, I guess. Um, it, it could be coercion. It could, you know, we're all for carrots in addition to sticks. Um, but yeah, I mean, and there is going to be, even if there's a carrot, you're going to feel like you're missing out. Um, if you ultimately are not participating in these, if the culture is sufficiently compelling, but yeah, we're all for doing that. And then, you know, everyone who doesn't have enough energy or gumption to want to opt into those or who is not sufficiently shamed out of them, um, they will die and their genetic tendencies will not be passed on. So who cares? They're irrelevant. 
Wait, wait. I, I think, like, yeah, this is kind of retreading ground, but, like, I don't think it is fully viable just, just because of the economics of it. I don't think it's fully viable to just say like, okay, we're just going to have this small fraction of the population actually have children and that that's going to be able to uh, continue. Like, I think that there's a lot of basically social good in preserving more, more of the population for the simple reason of basically like economies of scale, right? It's not like, it's not like that if some group of the population is able to uh, be above replacement and the others aren't, that those people are not going to see serious consequences, including, I think, deaths of starvation or deaths of lack of energy. Oh, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, to a great extent, was written because we are very concerned that many cultures are either infected with sterilizing memes, you know, essentially meaning that they're not, they're not capable of, of having kids and they're not having kids at high enough rates to replace them, like to have to, to maintain at least a stable population level or grow. Um, and we don't want that. We, we do want a very pluralistic future. We don't want a massive population decline and collapse. Those are all really bad things. Malcolm made it very clear when he spoke with you, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, no, we, we want that. And, and, and we we are we have theorized a bunch of different mechanisms that cultures can incorporate if they have currently low birth rates that can encourage high birth rates. And it's okay if some of those mechanisms are going to involve a little bit of shaming, a little bit of FOMO. Like, I mean, that's that's all right. And these things right, so sometimes be bad. Stronger case, right? Like, if the costs are so high, then isn't it justified to use state coercion to accomplish these these ends? Right? Isn't isn't it justified to kind of of create both legal pressures and legal incentives mm, in order? State to coercion backfires. We're we're more like, hey, take your foot off the neck of the the person uh, who's, uh, who's trying to have kids because right now it, it's unnecessarily expensive. And okay, yeah, having kids is expensive, but really, let's modify that statement. Having kids as a rich person is expensive. The, the, the big factor that correlates with high fertility rates is poverty. So, you know, this is not a, this is not a purely money thing. This is a, you know, currently everyone feels like they need to buy like non-used Ralph Lauren clothing for their children and spend $3,000 a month on daycare. And their child has to be watched at every moment because Child Protective Services is going to be called on them if their child is spotted walking home from school unattended for two blocks. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do to intervene when it comes to parenting and child rearing that make it more viable. Um, so, I mean, and, you know, you spoke with Zvi earlier on this podcast. Um, he has a great uh, Substack essay called i think car seats is contraception on this variation right, very yeah. detailed highly recommend it absolutely love it and that's that's our stance right so i do agree i definitely agree that there are a lot of artificial economic pressures that kind of needlessly raise the cost of having children hmm. doesn't this kind of contradict i don't know i i don't think that people are kind of making that decision ahead of time though right maybe that increases kind of like the married fertility rate right but i really don't think like if someone is choosing to live as a kind of hikikomori to to live as a loner dependent on like parasocial relationships that that's because of these kind of economic factors right no no i think that like, that I'm has sure these, to do these, it's multifactorial i'm sure the, that changing these programs will certainly do something but at the end of the day if the cost is so high Right. And we can identify these social trends that are 
pretty clearly having a large impact on the ability for people to form long-term relationships that are necessary to to, uh, raise children, then once again, right, shouldn't we just be banning these things in order to prevent decivilization or to prevent, you know, supply chains breaking down and so on and so forth? I don't think banning is going to make a difference. Uh, I think that this kind of isolationist lifestyle is the product of an absence of cultural institutions that enable people to more easily eat meet friends. Look at the education system, for example. I mean, <laughs> there are so many things wrong with it. Um, but one of them is that it doesn't teach people how to make friends. It basically teaches you only how to befriend those who are right in front of you. So as long as you're shoved into a classroom and sat next to a bunch of students, those are your friends. And then you go to college and those are your friends. And then you go to work and those are your friends. And people are not given the tools to even make friends beyond that, um, let alone dates. Oh my gosh. And and so, I mean, to a great extent, I mean, I think Hikikomori are a very interesting example of this on steroids, because when you look at the way that even within um, high school dating, at least as I've in- encountered it, has been managed in Japan, where like there's this very complex, like through friends, like double opt-in kind of trial where like m- my friend asks your friend if you think that, or if they think that you're into me and blah, blah, blah. And then we get introduced. Like that's really complicated. Uh, and, and there isn't a better social mechanism or cultural institution um, making it easier for young Japanese people to date. Um, so it just, it just breaks much even, even faster than in the United States. Um, and, and so, I mean, Malcolm and I are also developing an alternative to secondary school. And one of the top tools that we want to give to students in that school is, hey, here is how to build a very strong social network. Here's how to cold email people who you think are interesting um, or reach out to them on Twitter or whatever it is it's going to be that people use to communicate with each other. Um, here's how to make friends. Here's how to host stuff and make social networks happen um, because people aren't given those tools. And even just that, that's just with making friends, you know, let alone dating. And what I think is really interesting is that in the past, we even had these, these cultural institutions um, in, in nations like the United States. One of my favorite things to watch on YouTube are old instructional videos for middle and high school. They are amazing. I have a whole YouTube playlist of them. Um, and they, they're little like advice videos on like, you know, if you dress like a slob, no one's going to like you. And, you know, here's how to date and here's how, how to ask someone out on a date. And here's how to determine what, you know, what to do if you're in love. And, you know, it's, it's amazing because a lot of these feel like when you watch them really inappropriate, like in our current society, but there were, there were concerted efforts clearly in American public schools to teach people how to date each other, to teach people how to be a good date, how to not be a jerk to other people. And you actually do need to teach people these things. Um, and uh, one thing that we talk a lot about in the Pragmatist's Guide to Relationships is um, relationship contracts. And normally when people hear about things like marriage contracts or um any sort of uh, relationship-based contract. It's, you know, it's some kind of like BDSM thing. That's like immediately where their mind goes. It's like, oh, you know, I come home and you spank me five times after I crawl up to you. Um, And that's totally something you can throw into a contract. But what we we talk about more is that, um, you know, in the past, people sort of were able to share a unified social contract. It was understood um, 
especially if, for example, you went to some 1950s public school and you all watched the same instructional video on how dating works. And so you knew what it meant if someone was going steady and you knew what it meant if someone asked you out to dinner and you knew what it meant if someone asked you to go to their home afterward. All these things were understood. Um, but now, right, so because, why did we, why did we lose the cultural institutions? I mean, to a certain extent, I don't know, like was, I don't know exactly where it fell apart. Was it feminism? Was it, was it modernity? Was it an assumption that we were, we were imposing too much cultural informity on people? Um, and it's, it's, or conformity. It, it's okay if we do that, by the way, you know, if we give people a lot of freedom, it just means that everyone has to negotiate a social contract explicitly and upfront if they want things to go well. But most people don't, right? You yeah. can see no. population level differences if you if you remove these cultural institutions. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like, I mean, the, the 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 many terrible things that I I probably did to people when I was a teen, um, where they thought they were like dating me, and I was too autistic to realize that, and I thought we were just friends and hanging out, you know, because there weren't those social contracts. Um, and so yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that's a, a big part of it. Right, right. I, I I want to get a better answer. Like, what happened? So, so yeah, you, you say you say you don't really know why these cultural institutions disappear. Yeah, you, I guess you you don't see these instructional videos after like the late sixties. I I can't find any as much as I want them. Yeah, like it could be related to uh, the ideas of sterilizing memes, right? Like something yeah. like social justice is against these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, I guess like we hit like whatever. free love in the 60s, right? That's sort of where traditional marriage started to be shat upon by society. And it was less cool. And I guess we didn't impose that on people the same way. And then a whole generation grew up without these these shared understandings. So we can we can blame once again the baby boomers for ruining everything. Yeah, yeah. There, there's an argument that actually, like, the boomers were okay. It's the Xers that were the problem, right? Because, because like, the boomers, the boomers still had, they still obeyed the kind of rules, right? The reason why their their family formation was actually kind of stable is that they still had the rules, right? They I think their divorce rates were pretty high. And they're also like the the first generation. So as I understand it, the boomers were the one where where this all fell, fell apart. They were the ones that are the basis of the very misused statistic that 50% of marriages fall apart, which is totally not prevalent in younger generations. But among boomers, I think is is where that hmm. stat first emerged. Uh, it was boomers that developed um, much more innovative, but maybe less sustainable relationship formats. Um, I mean, I, I am the product of, I guess, a broken polyamorous relationship. Um, like my mom was a secondary in a relationship that my dad was in. Like, and this is, these are boomers, right? You know, so like, I, I do think that it's the, the boomers that experience this. It's Gen X that was raised in these boomer experimental families and kind of like left behind to a great extent. You know, they're, they're often seen as this sort of like pessimistic, like neglected child generation and then you have like the millennials which were like the boomer's second shot at like raising kids well i guess you know once they maybe got a little more mature and then you know they were helicopter parented to death and now they all have anxiety problems um and then i i don't know like we're we're seeing gen z now and they're like oddly conservative uh which is super interesting <laughs> so i don't i don't know what's happening um wait i don't think gen z is conservative you are know you maybe there are me? like posters like like 
if shit posters online who are conservative, but I don't think Gen Z is all that conservative. I don't know. We're we're seeing a lot more interest in monogamy and marriage and having kids and like less less interest in polyamory. Uh, although, like, there is it, it's it's unevenly distributed conservatism. So, like, wide acceptance of LGBTQ whatever culture, you know, wide acceptance of a lot of very very progressive values. But at the same time, much more conservative views toward gender, marriage, things like that. I mean, I was just looking at some, I think it was a Pew um, study. Maybe it was some other study on on teen influences and preferences, like their top brands or top stores that they shop at. And I think the number one influencer, especially for teen males, can you guess who it was? Is it Peterson? No, Andrew Tate. My Tate. God. Oh, my goodness. Tate. Okay. I'm telling you, like something is going on, Brian, and I don't understand it. But I mean, yeah, if Andrew Tate's a top influencer, something's going on here. Um, and it's not exactly super progressive woke culture predominating everything. So who knows? It's we're in for a wild ride. Right. So hmm, what's my understanding of Zoomers? I don't know. I think. Yeah, you know, I obviously, I, I am a Zoomer. I know many Zoomers. Hmm. Like, especially kind of like Americans, like not not immigrant Zoomers, but like kind of, uh, yeah, Zoomers who are like either, who are, whose families have been in America for at least three generations. Mm-hmm. It seems like they have kind of, I, I think someone described Trump as the kind of like post-apocalyptic Zoomer or like the post-apocalyptic <laughs> conservative candidate. Nice. Right? Like in a normal in a normal kind of conservative world, they still stand for like people with basically good personal characteristics, good in their eyes, right? People who have very stable families or kind of like a good father are or are maybe uh humble, personally courageous, right? None of which none of which is Trump, but the reason why they're they're very accepting of Trump is because, you know, like, we are in the post-apocalyptic world. We know what time it is, right? Mm. Um, you know, it's time to storm the cockpit, right? Um, where you're in a world where basically those... Basically, like, people do not apply those standards to themselves, but they feel like something is very wrong, right? But they feel like it's completely out of their control because, you know, it's um, it's already too widespread. I think that that is a kind of pretty popular Zoomer sentiment, I think. Right. That basically like they are personally kind of like promiscuous, but they think it, they, they kind of like understand that they're in a broken system. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that it's actually pretty popular. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good thing um, because, again, you know, we're, we've reached this evolutionary choke point. Culture has not yet developed the right kind of solution to this current stage of, of technological development. And we need to reach that. I think Zoomers are going to be the ones to figure it out. They've seen. What do you mean? Culture has not developed it, right? Like, like you were talking about, this exists in religious communities. This exists wherever there is a mandate to kind of impose these things. They just need to be imposed. It's it's not. It's still not working very well. I mean, singles wards are awesome. For example, with the LDS Church, but Mormons are arguably starting to just drop below repopulation rate. So even with them, this isn't necessarily working out. I think in the face of pervasive technology, globalism, as much as that's going to last or not last, um, and, you know, all of these different sort of 
um, cheat codes that we discussed, ranging from amazing porn to parasocial relationships to chatbots that can make you feel like you have a meaningful relationship with someone that really understands you. Um, we, we need to evolve something even better unless we're going to like air gap from society like the Amish do. But I think that, that Gen Z is going to figure that out. Why I think that think they're, that? they're navigating, they're, they're going to take the best of, of everything of conservative, hyper progressive, um, and other weird subcultures. And they're going to figure out a new way forward. Why do you think that? Because I'm seeing, I'm seeing them very thoughtfully see various ways in which millennials have crashed and burned culturally, societally, like in terms of mental health and being very thoughtful, like rather than get wiped out by certain waves and changes and, you know, ending up with crippling anxiety or depression, they, they seem to be, they may be entering lifestyles, um, dominated by anxiety, loneliness and depression, but they're doing so intentionally and thoughtfully, and they're aware of what's happening. They're aware of the problem and they're thinking about ways to, to fix it. And, and I feel like it's, they're more likely to surf the wave than wipe out under it because they've seen it start to happen. It didn't happen to them. Like they saw other people ahead of them go through it first. So they get another try. Right. So the line of reasoning is that they see they kind of recognize the problems but they're choosing to replicate them intentionally and this is a good thing yeah okay mm. i i do not see how that you know that changes the birth rate i do not see how that no solves yeah no no, no. things still have to change significantly okay. for birth rates to go up um but I don't know. I mean, there, there, there are certainly plenty of backlash style groups that are very interested in traditional marriage and in having kids that, you know, are, are starting to navigate that while still being pretty modern and integrated with the internet and online life. So that's, that's somewhat hopeful. Right. Yeah. There is certainly an internet faction. There's the idea that you can have kind of network states of these people gathering together and eventually that maybe spreads. You can establish a norm from the ground up like that. Okay, that is that is kind of like the most optimistic libertarian scenario for me. Well, and of course, but like just the future isn't necessarily going to play yeah. out in, in a libertarian way, but we're hoping that libertarian factions can either become powerful enough or run under the radar enough and grow over the long term where it doesn't matter what happens with mainstream society. Right, like... The problem is, right, you still need to have like a threshold for those markets to basically work, right? Economies of scale when it comes to something like, say, say global energy production, right? Let's say shipping, uh, manufacturing, right? In order for these things to function at the current cost, right? At the current low cost. We saw that we saw this in like a miniature version with COVID, right? With supply chain and disruptions, Chinese mm-hmm. factories shut down, you know, um, increased shipping costs due to uh, due to pandemic measures and so on. But that's very small compared to the kind of decivilization you'll see if you, you get dramatic population reduction. Right? Well, like, I that's think we're going to see problem. that. Like the number of libertarians in the world, you know, like societies cannot sustain themselves on libertarianism alone, right? Like most people are not libertarian. No, that's that's true. And we're also going to I mean, if you follow the reasoning of people like Peter Zihan, we are going to see 
a certain extent of deglobalization. I don't think it is going to be profound as that level that he predicts, you know, but I, I do think that we are going to see uh, not well, a, a world that is not so interconnected, at least from a physical supply chain standpoint. Um, and so inexpensive and instant gratification oriented as, as we're used to, we're going to see, a smaller range of products on our shelves. We're going to see higher prices. We're going to see general lower uh, material um, standards of living. And that's, I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, we're, we're reaching a new equilibrium and maybe what we experienced for the past 20 years just wasn't sustainable. So there's kind of this recognition that there's going to be a sharp economic cost. And you can put that, you can put that like, You can put that on one side and you can put the costs of basically having a non-libertarian family policy. You can take that and, and compare it to, say, like banning birth control, right? That, that's kind of one obvious measure that is also quite extreme. Yeah, which and I'm you can sure put the we'll cost see. of that on the other side. Yeah. And to me, it's like completely not obvious. In fact, I think like if I were to guess, I would say the costs of in the in the medium term, the cost of banning birth control is significantly less than the cost of basically having like, you know, libertarian family policy and trying to solve this thing without any kind of coercion. Uh, I know, but we we don't want a world with coercive reproduction. And also we've seen that backfire big time in nations like Romania that did ban abortions and birth control. And then Romanian orphanages overflowed with orphans. And then the long-term population um, benefit was negative because yes, there was this one boom of, of unwanted children, which breaks my heart. And then there was this bust of people avoiding having children at all costs because it was associated with poverty and low class and all these, you know, tragic problems. So, you know, that kind of coercive reproduction really doesn't work. Um, we're going to see it happening. I mean, in China, there's, there's word of vasectomy clinics shutting down. There's word of, of, um, birth control being harder to get like this is it's happening and it's gonna happen and we're very worried about it um the the approach that we personally take is listen guys like we can only do what we can do so what we want to do like okay we're going to write a playbook that tries to impart cultures with tools that will raise their internal birth rates naturally and hopefully preserve them into the future great and the cool thing is that you don't need to have everyone in a culture start having kids to preserve and save that culture. If just a few families have a lot of kids and are successful in imparting that culture onto their kids who in turn have lots of kids of their own, they can very effectively preserve that culture and and also have it become even way, way bigger than it is now in the distant future, not so distant future even. So we're not this is not a an intractable problem. And it's also not a problem that's that's going to be solved um, without other nations doing way worse and less sustainable things like banning access to abortions. But I think you are underplaying how effective it is to create a very strong fitness imparting culture. And by that, I mean not just fitness in terms of like the success of its adherence during their lifetimes, professionally, mentally, et cetera, but also their ability to reproduce um, above repopulation rate. Um you don't realize how powerful that is. Um, as long as that culture is intergenerationally durable and the children raised within it in turn have their own children and raise them in that culture and so on and so forth. 
Right. Yeah. I can, I can look at the exponential curve. Yeah. And I can say like, I can say like, yeah, like good, good luck. You know, I, I, I wish, I wish you guys the best, right? This is, you know, definitely better than nothing. No, you sound like you're not going to join our weird index of cultures and ally your family with ours and have our children intermarry. Brian, you are very welcome. I mean, I may try, you know, I may try, you know, after I, I find someone to marry, I may try to have many children, but I don't think, I, I don't think it's nearly enough to just basically, like, we're kind of in agreement that there's like a sterilizing, there are like sterilizing cultural forces, right? Mm-hmm. And many of these are downstream of state action. And that yes. basically, you should be using, or like, this is the point where, where we diverge, I think, by like, you know, good luck with that. I mean, like, not that I won't try to have more children personally. I mean that basically, like... If this is a problem to be solved, you know, I, I don't think that it can be solved without basically, you know, without basically charging the cockpit, right? Without basically <laughs> understanding that removing the sterilizing culture should be something that is not only uniting, but something that justifies additional use of force. I hear you. Uh, I just don't see how that's going to happen. So here's the part where I say... Have fun storming the cockpit, Brian. Right, we'll see right. See how yeah. that goes for you, friend. That's true. This is this is a good point, right? This is a but good let's, point. Let's do this. Like... You storm the cockpit, all right? And and Malcolm and I go off to the compound and create our weird Dune style house based index system of allied families that go into the post apocalyptic future together. You right. can always change your mind, though. <laughs> you can send someone else to, else to the, the, the cockpit. Come <laughs> out with sure. us. For sure. Um, let, let's talk more about the kind of culture uh, of uh, hikikomori or of these kind of parasocial relationships. What is it that people find so attractive about them? I think there's a lot of... I mean, I I, I struggle with this because I personally find it so appealing. I love being alone. I love not having to owe anything to anyone else and to do whatever I want. And, and I think that that's, that's shown in the data. I mean, before, before we started this podcast, I was telling you how I'd I'd recently come across data showing how prevalent the, the status of hikikomori is. So while in Japan numbers have it ranging from 0.87% to 1.2% of the Japanese population, though up to 26% in Japan's student population, um, some figures have it at 6.6% in China, 1.9% in Hong Kong, 2.3% in Korea, 20.9% in Singapore, 9.5% <laughs> in Nigeria, and 2.7% in the United States. Oh, and, and 9% in Taiwan. So this is a lot of Singapore, people. truly the IQ shredder. I know, right? I know. I know, but I, love, I freaking love it. I love it. Uh, it. It's appealing. It's fun. It's easy. I mean, it's interesting because... um either you've read or watched ready player one i presume uh yeah i've read it i've read it in my childhood like a long time ago I oh my god you're so freaking young I am with yeah I remember, we, we recently had someone like staying with us who called kung fu panda the second one a classic and i'm like oh god kung fu panda is a classic a childhood cl- this is this is wrong oh we're so old um but yeah no so i mean like it, it's interesting because that that was framed in a book as this like futuristic society um, where, you know, people are sort of shut up in these like stacked upon stacked upon trailers, um, in this post-apocalyptic society, spending most of their time online. But like, ooh, we're kind of there, you know, 20.9% in Singapore. How are we not there already? Um, people just don't realize and we, we don't have haptic suits, sadly, um, and cool like treadmill runny things, but 
we're kind of Elon, get it done. I know, man. Like, make it happen. <laughs> I'm into it. I am ready. Um, and I just, I, I think that people don't, they haven't recognized that we are now embarking on this new stage of what it means to be human, and especially with the advent of AI, um, thing, things are really changing. You know, we're we're looking at an age in which maybe a lot of the interaction that we'll be having in the world will really be interaction that our um, AI doppelgangers are going to have on our behalf because we just can't be bothered to, you know, pull ourselves away from some Skinner box based social network or game to actually interact with customer service or our employers or our friends and family ourselves. And those people will be interacting with our, you know, AI replacement without even realizing it. Like, yeah, so no I think word. you answered part of the question. Okay. The question did start with the the word why. Why? Right? Like I agree that I agree with you that these things are happening. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to know why you think it's happening. I think it's happening because systems have discovered the the ways around basically what what motivates humans and what attracts us and systems have discovered um our inherent laziness and any system that is, you know, driven by capitalism or driven by growth is ultimately going to optimize around whatever it is that hooks people. And so we end up with TikTok. Um, you know, this is just the the more that we can have constant evolution and constant optimization around attention and around usage, um, we're going to end up with systems that are incredibly effective at capturing our attention and interest. Are you for or against banning TikTok for minors? I'm going to say against because I kind of see it like an evolutionary bottleneck that will weed out a certain amount of weakness. Um, and this is something that happens a lot like with parenting groups um, where there's just really polarized discussion of screen time in general, not just like TikTok, but like, do we give our phone our kids phones at all? Do we have TV time in our home at all? Um, can our play, kids play video games? And, you know, there's there's one side where people are like, we're just going to go cold turkey on everything. And Malcolm and I don't want to do that with our kids, not just because we think that you need to use these things to a certain extent to be able to function in mainstream society as an adult. And we want children who are able to, in their adult lives, influence society if they care to do so. Um, But also because if someone is raised in a total absence of these things, it's kind of like raising a, a child in some kind of um, super clean bubble where they have no exposure to allergens, viruses, and bacteria. You know, then they like leave the bubble and they just like instantly die because <laughs> all the diseases get them at once. And if you don't inoculate people against these things um, and teach them how to deal with the Skinner box style um, games and social networks and whatnot, then, you know, they're going to get wiped out or they're more likely to get wiped out if they choose to engage with those things in the future. So we want to give them those tools. But then finally, we would prefer to have children who also learn how to manipulate other people through those tools. And it's kind of hard to do so if you don't understand them yourself. Right. That's interesting. Um, I remember one line that I said a lot on podcasts that I was going on before was, you know, you know, Zoomers, Zoomers are experts with TikTok in the same way that addicts are experts at injecting heroin. Um, <sighs> but yeah, I, I don't, 
Man, I wanted to stop, you know, I wanted to to put the dunking on libertarianism segment behind us. But, yeah, there really is, I think, a misunderstanding of noblesse oblige or misunderstanding of, like, just, like, the the practical, like, group-selective consequences of something like allowing TikTok uh, for minors, at the very least, hmm. right? There, there's like a question in the middle, which I'm a, there's like a claim in the middle that I'm a little bit skeptical of. There's a little bit of empirical research earlier. I think like this is one of the Height papers on Instagram, Jonathan Height's papers on Instagram, where where he showed or like he he showed a slight correlation between, um, or like yeah, he he showed that. Uh, yeah, I think that this is a correlation. I'm not sure how much evidence it is of causation that, you know, people uh, exposed to TikTok or sorry, exposed to Instagram in their childhood are more likely to be addicted in it in their early adulthood. This could, of course, this could, of course, be, you know, like the type of person who's addicted to uh, Instagram are more likely to beg their parents to let them on Instagram, like so on and so forth, right? Like mm. that, that might be the actual cause there. But I, I do think it's kind of like an open empirical question of whether... It is actually true that exposing your children to social media makes them less likely as opposed to more likely to be addicted in the future. Like mm-hmm. I could, I'm completely open to be proven wrong there in the future, but I would advise against taking that as an absolute point, at least now. And to the rest of it, like, I just think like, no, there's obviously, I think like the long-term effects of basically of, of these kind of like population selection or, or like this kind of like individual or like selection of this individual trait, right. Of basically being resistant to the Skinner box is like, there is a middle, there's a middle term bottleneck, right. Which is just decivilization, which is descaling. And I think the more you can preserve parts of society through some kind of basically, you know, either social or legal pressure in the case of banning TikTok, the more you'll be prepared for that middle bottleneck. And I really don't think, you know, like, I really don't think you can just say like any negative problem can be solved if we just allow, you know, if we allow for trait selection enough times. I do think that there are actually costs in the middle there that you can't just, you know, that you have to have a sense of noblesse oblige or else group selection will take you out. Oh, so so noblesse oblige relates to TikTok and that you feel like we must save the poor fools who are addicted to it. Not Not in a kind of like... Not purely in a moral sense, although I actually do believe in a kind of moral sense as well. But like, even arguing from the sort of libertarian utilitarian perspective, right? There is group selection happening. There are direct impacts of basically having those people survive and the ability to maintain, you know, economies of scale. And even from the libertarian perspective, right? Even if you're not already kind of someone who believes in moral, in noblesse oblige as a kind of moral claim, you should believe in it as a kind of claim for, from like the perspective of group selection. Mm. So let's not have TikTok destroy the productivity of all humans because we need their productivity. Yeah, yeah. The limited version of this is true, right? That That is also true, but also just more broadly, their, their kind of participation in society doing pro-social things. But yes, productivity is but definitely are, a factor are as well. Are they doing pro-social things? Um, you know, not not to be mean to most people, but like... What are, what's the counterfactual here? You know, like, are they, are these people out, like, you know, inventing the next form of nuclear power? Uh, I mean, I don't know. But you have Ricardian equivalents, right? You, you have people working in whatever thing 
is you know a positive sum trade. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I I would love to see research on like what proportion of living humans contribute to the advancement of society in some way. But I, I, maybe I'm just a little too pessimistic about what people are going to be doing. Like how would you define that other than people are willing to pay for something to be done, right? Well, I mean, I'm also having a crisis about that. I mean, I, we, we drive by like giant Samsung buildings and Amazon buildings. And I just like, I have these crises where I'm like, what are they doing? Like, I, you, should, you, you can't, there are so many people who are doing nothing meaningful in large organizations um, where they're, they're not contributing to the bottom line. They're not actually adding to ROI. They're just contributing to cancerous tumors that are on top of that organization like from a governance standpoint. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm not the right person to consult about this because I'm more just like, burn it all. Right. This is, this is once again, like, okay. So, so there is some, okay. So I'm, I'm going to try to steel man this. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm going to try to steel man this. I agree with you. There are people in, in organizations that are definitely not contributing Right. You, you can argue some of this is an artifact of like HR laws, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have those people because, you know, otherwise you get sued for violations of HR laws, so on and so forth. Um, okay. But are there, are there a percentage of people who even, you know, who, who are not necessarily even despite those HR laws, are there middle managers, are there basically bullshit jobs of people who are not benefiting kind of, who are not actually doing things that are beneficial? Um, I do agree that that exists to some degree. Right. Like, yeah, I'm actually surprised I don't have stats on like, you know, what percent of people are bullshit jobs. I should reread that book as well. But, you know, like what what portion of people would you say is a fair number to say is like, you know, like actual bullshit jobs? Uh, 70 to 85 percent. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, we, could, we could we could probably apply the Pareto principle to this, like 80-20. 20% contributing to ROI, 80% dead weight. Okay, let me just, okay. Statista breakdown of Oh, US that's not, industries. people are tracking things that way. Um, you know, I mean, I, I wish that, I mean, I, and I would love, I would love for you to find real stats on this, but like. I don't think that there are good studies of this information. And a lot of this is, we, we talk about this in the Pragmatist's Guide to Governance, our other new book, um, where, you know, at an organization, once it reaches a certain size, certain departments start to grow kind of like tumors, um, where they, they grow and grow and, and start to just grow for growth's sake. And then they find all sorts of ways to justify why they need to exist and what they're doing and why they matter. Um, even though they may not be contributing to the the mission or the overall purpose of the organization, so right, I, would right. be... I wrote an article about this, the, the midwit cycle. Right, you have basically people who uh, compete on conformity, and those people are introduced in order to satisfy coalitional games, and those people then increase the percentage of coalitional games versus actual productive activity. Like mm. I agree with this in some to, to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. But eighty percent of people. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not we saying can those remove eighty percent like, of people from the economy, and nothing would change. Um, 
I mean, yeah. Well, like 80% of people's work, right? Let's let's I feel, say like yeah. they're still and maintaining I think consumption. we're seeing this with with the introduction, well, like with with the the great resignation um with with the like the number of people who are choosing to phone it in with their jobs with the, the great resignation to which- is like 4% a quarter, right? In the worst that it was, right? Yeah. That's not that's nowhere near 80%. Like no, quantitatively, no. I just don't see how you get that at all. Well, well, because we're still in the middle of it. I mean, I would I would argue that a lot of these people still have, you know, are, are maintaining jobs that aren't really doing anything or contributing anything. But what my general intuition is, and I could be totally off with this. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but my general intuition is that over time, um, AI automation and just more efficient systems and businesses um, are just going to move forward without without a lot of these roles. And they're just never going to be replaced because people will discover that they were not necessary to begin with. And that the only place where these roles will probably remain is in leg- 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 legacy institutions and in the government where like they're literally, literally required to remain. Right, right. I think, yeah, there will be displacement. I agree that there will be displacement with artificial specific intelligence, but that I, I don't think neither, that neither means that, you know, those people were not actually doing something, right? Like you can, there are plenty of jobs, you know, like writing software that can in part be replaced by artificial specific intelligence Mm -hmm. and simultaneously are not like actually do something, right? Like without, you know, without the API, you actually can't use that, use that package of software, right? Like the person who's doing that, even if it's, you know, like an easier job that can be mod and that can be automated is doing something. Yeah, that's true. I think like this is a good place to leave it because yeah, like, at the end of the day, this is an empirical question. I am very skeptical that it's 80%, you know? Um, yeah, like the argument that I was going to say is like, okay, let's say that it's something something smaller, like 20%, then then you can look at like what kind of, de- what percentage of descaling, decivilization is going to affect that versus actual productive industries. But yeah, I can see where you're coming from if you do think it's like 80%. I just think that's an empirical disagreement that we have. Yeah, I mean, and I know we're looking at things from very different perspectives, right? Like I'm looking at this from like I can look at the stats with the travel business that we we run, Travel Max, um, and I can see exactly how much to the bottom line our employees contribute, and it is even more extreme than that. Um, so I don't know. I just I just think that some people contribute so much more disproportionately. Right, right. But that's a kind of SaaS marketplace, right? It's a software or, no. or it's a software as a service. It's a travel agency. <laughs> um, it's it's a travel agency, and and people are kind of more or less technically doing the same kind of work. Um, right, right. But compare that to say, you know, like a manufacturing plant or like a chemical production. Yeah. Uh, like, like it's pretty clear that, like, I don't know, like, I, I believe you if you say that, like, 80% of people in, like, travel agencies are are basically doing bullshit jobs. But, like, that is a very, that is definitely on the right tail of it, right? Yeah, one, well, and there are, there are factories where, you know, you need humans to do certain things for now, I guess. And there are service jobs where you definitely need humans to do things for now. Um, but, yeah, um, I guess we'll see in you know 50 to 100 years how it plays out and i'm not saying humans aren't themselves like valuable and productive i think that you know on a family level on an individual level 
humans are immensely productive. I'm just saying when it comes to them contributing to the bottom line and mission of the organizations that they're working with when they're large bureaucracies is highly questionable. Right, right. Okay, let's maybe return, let's maybe return to something that we have more more agreement on. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is the role of self-deception in dating? Well, I think it's it's the it's the thing that kills dating. It's it's horrible. Um, when people are much more realistic about dating, I think you see um, much more successful marriages. You see this in, for example, um, the the high rates of I was going to say retention, but the high rates of satisfaction and even high love in uh <laughs> in great. you know all the same thing in arranged marriages where I would say there's very little hmm. self deception, um, and. You know, I, I think removing the romance and removing love from relationships is one of the best things you can do if you actually care about romance and love. Um, like Malcolm and I broke up um, in, in very intentionally. Well, more because I, I wanted to live alone forever, but and, and he was going to find a much more qualified life. Oh, sorry, wife at Stanford. Um, so we decided we were going to part ways after dating. Um, but we we also were very intentional about. Um, decoupling before potentially committing to get married, if that ultimately seemed to be the most optimal thing to do, because at least then we could make that decision when not under the influence of infatuation and all the chemicals that come with it. Like it's, it's a really bad idea to choose to marry someone because you are hormonally, chemically in love with them. Um, and you know, love is, is a form kind of of self-deception, um, getting caught up in romantic, narratives as a form of self-deception, not understanding the lore that you use to bring someone into a relationship is a form of self-deception. So yeah, man, it's, it's terrible. I hate it. And I think the best thing you could possibly do is if you really care about someone and you really want to spend the rest of your life with them, create a relationship contract because you have to, right? Because you're not dealing on the same social contract anymore as people. Everyone has a different implied social contract. So sit down, go through everything that could possibly go wrong in your relationship and write out a relationship contract that covers everything from acceptable indoor temperatures to what you do when your parents get sick and ask to move in. Um, and maybe that means your relationship will fall apart because you're going to discover some deal breakers. One of you wants kids, the other doesn't. Um, but it's much better to end those relationships sooner rather than later. So you don't waste your, you know, optimal dating years on someone who is ultimately not going to be the right partner for you to begin with. The sooner people become relationship realists, the better. Relationship realists. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) <laughs> um, okay, so have you ever read the book uh, The Dark Forest? Or no. no. I think this was the first one, uh, The Three-Body Problem by uh, Liu Shijin. Tell me about it. Okay. Um, yeah, I will... S- I don't know. There are a lot of spoilers. There are a lot of spoilers. Oh my but God, it's about, spoilers you know... are great. I think I, I read in some study or another that people, when presented with spoilers, actually enjoyed the content more afterward. But at least you've just left a spoiler alert for the... The, the annoying people who hate them. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, the, the plot of the book is, or the f- plot of the first book is like, oh, the alien, you know, it's a, it's a book about aliens. Uh, Earth makes communication with aliens. And then uh, those aliens uh, basically want to invade Earth. 
because their their homeland is uh, about to be consumed by the sun. All right, and, all right, okay. Yeah, and uh, the books go through a lot of kind of science fiction, a lot of game theory. I really like it. Uh, but in the first book, this is actually completely unrelated to all of that. <laughs> this is completely unrelated to the plot of the main book at all. But there was this line that I thought was very beautiful, which was something like, oh, no, I think this might have been actually the second book. It might have been actually The Dark Forest. I don't all remember. Right. It was so irrelevant to the plot. But the line is, um, people don't fall in love with a person. Uh, people fall in love with a fantasy. And whether yes. the relationship stays is whether that person can live up to it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that is, um, you know, what, what Malcolm said to me recently was that what really matters when you choose a spouse is what they envision for you and what you envision for them. And if that's compatible, um, mm. and, and if you are willing to work toward the person they see you have the potential to become and vice versa. And that kind of dovetails with our favorite relationship lore, which we call the Pygmalion relationship in which you pair off with someone because they want to work with you to become a better version of yourself. So it's a complete refutation of this concept of someone loving you for who you are, which we find to be pathetic and sad. It is all about marrying someone who believes you can be better and who will push you to be better. When Malcolm and I got married in our relation or in our um, our marriage vows, he explicitly said, I do not promise to love you, but I do promise to try to improve you. Um, <laughs> and that totally is what our relationship is about. And it has been absolutely awesome. We don't take each other's bullshit. If one of us is moping, we get the other person to stop. And honestly, I think it's better for our mental health. We don't, we don't indulge in problems. We don't indulge in anxieties. We push through stuff. Um, and that's not everyone's style, but you know, a lot of those people who don't have the stomach for relationships like this suffer from a whole lot more mental illness and other, uh, depressive issues than we do. So small sample, but, um, just saying it works pretty well for us. And we're not exactly like the most mentally normal people out there. Right, right. But this could be, you know, a positive selection effect, right? I think it's very clear that both of you are very intelligent. You know, like my audience has listened to both of you on the podcast now. You you have extremely interesting ideas. You've been very successful economically, right? Like I'm pretty skeptical that this would work for the kind of average person. Successful economically. I'm wearing a snowsuit right now, Brian, because I am too cheap to heat this side of the house and it's 52 degrees in here. <laughs> right, right. But you did talk about something that was very that was very interesting there, which is like the relationship between relationships and mental illness. Right. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think that both the kind of both like actual mental illness and like the idea of mental illness has had on the dating market? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think Malcolm mentioned to you that he heard someone once say that they wouldn't date someone if they they weren't seeing a therapist and just how scary that was to hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't see mental illnesses as a deal breaker at all. I think Malcolm probably saw all of my various mental weirdnesses and was like, I see an opportunity here because she is an <laughs> underpriced good. I mean, I'm basically undateable. I mean, I planned on living alone forever for a reason. I am not compatible with pretty much everyone. I'm, I'm extremely autistic. I'm very particular around things. I, I am, I am not an easy person to live with. And he saw that as a great selling point because for most people, I was an, an unpurchasable good. 
and he could get me at a, an extreme discount. And yet I am an extreme um, signal booster and um, value added like component to his life. So I think mental illness can be awesome as long as you know how to navigate it um, with people. And as long as you have sort of compatible mental, mental illnesses. And I think many people do. Um, so that's nice. Um, the, the big deal breakers we see here is, you know, if someone is extremely addicted to something that they're unable to undergo treatment for. Um, so like, you know, gambling or like really, really dangerous, addictive drugs like that, that can be, I think a, a decent deal breaker. Cause it's really hard to dig people out of those holes. But aside from that, man, everything's fair game. Right. And what about, yeah, you mentioned a little bit the, the um, Malcolm saying that he did not like, or like that he was really kind of pessimistic on therapy culture. But um, so the second part of that question was what, what effect has like kind of like perception of mental illness or the idea of mental illness had on the dating market, right? Do you have anything to say on that? I think it has given many people an excuse not to try. Um, which is, mm, is, is yes. it goes back to that problem, right? Is that, oh, I have an anxiety problem, so I can't date, you know, or like I, it, it enables, there's, there's been a lot of learned helplessness going around. Um, and that's only going to make it harder for people to pair off. So yeah, mental illness, as people have internalized it as a big deal, um, really, really isn't helpful. And we also feel like a lot of what mental illness is has to do with your internal narrative. So you don't, you don't think, and Malcolm talked about it this a little bit with you um, in the context of like childhood sexual abuse, but this happens with a lot of things is, you know, if you are kind of blue or, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of weird, you have some obsessive compulsive tendencies, whatever it might be. And your society around you, your friends, your therapist, your parents, whoever it might be, turns to you and says, oh, my gosh, you have a really big deal like disease or mental problem or trauma that you have to get through. Let's take you through therapy. You need to engage in more self-care. Hey, why don't you step back from your job a little bit? You know, like all these things, you know, they turn you into a victim. And then suddenly you don't feel empowered to go out and solve your own problems. And that's not to to rob anyone of, of bad things that have happened to them. Bad things happen to people all the time, but we, we think it's really the, the dangerous thing. The powerful thing is when people internalize those things as negative things, instead of something that made them stronger, something they overcame, something they can overcome. And then they use that as an excuse to live mediocre shut in lives. Right. Right. Okay. So hypothetically asking for a friend. If, uh, if my friend, you know, hypothetically, uh, has a very consistent pattern of both attracting and falling in love with like very severely mentally ill girls. I love it. How, how would this hypothetical friend change this pattern? I mean, Malcolm has a similar tendency and it worked out for him. Uh, I, I think, you know, we're all kind of mentally ill at this point and you have to find if someone's willing to, to, um, you know, specifically girls who have very severe depressive disorder. Oh shit. Yeah. That's <laughs> tough. Ah, oh. yeah. And you know, Malcolm did have some partners in the past who just couldn't get out of it. And, you know, after a point, if like no one's willing to try anything, it, it 
you got to move on to someone who's willing to pull themselves out of it because you can't live a life with someone who is unwilling to push through their problems, get over them, work on them, whatever it may be. So they become functional human beings. And it really affects the other partner. You know, if one person is severely depressed and we've all been through hard times, like when you really care about and love someone and they are suffering from cancer or severe depression or any other malady, you're suffering too. Um, and especially if that person isn't dealing with it well, it hurts everyone even more. So yeah, to a certain extent you have to cut and run. Um, but I also think that there is the potential to meet people with severe mental illness problems. I mean, I, I have a tendency, um, probably genetically and, you know, like in my past toward depression and the way that Malcolm and I lived or built a life together kind of. I don't know how to put this made depression, not an option. Like we have bigger things to worry about and care about. And there's certainly a timeline in which I didn't ever meet Malcolm and became someone who was much more likely to continue to suffer from depression, but also like in terms of training your partner, I think it's possible to train a partner and work together with a partner both ways. You know, even if maybe you like um, the hypothetical friends have tendencies toward depression, um, both partners can, can kind of pull each other out of depression if they're very thoughtful about it, but you have to be thoughtful and you have to have a willing partner. And I think the problem challenge with Pygmalion relationships where each partner sharpens the other partner, they only work when that's consensual. You know, like if the other partner wants to As be accepted, to other types of relationships, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> oh man, it, it's 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 a mess. I'm telling you, you know, like we can all just have our our AI friends keep us company forever. But uh, yeah, right, right. You mentioned something there. This is perfect because this is literally the next question I was going to ask. Uh, what is partner training, and how mm. does it work? Yeah. Um, so. We argue that very, very early in a relationship, you need to start training your partner, um, especially when it comes to stopping pseudo-abusive, pre-abusive, possibly abusive behavior well before it begins. You know, if someone has a tendency to shut down arguments, if someone has a tendency to do something that you don't like, you have to bring it up right away um, the first one or two times it happens and say, this is not okay. Here's how we deal with this. If you're not willing to do to deal with this, you know, in a way that's more constructive. I don't think we can be in a relationship together. Um, and a, a lot of partner training can also come down to negotiating your relationship contract and going through everything that can go wrong and discussing it up front. Um, and if someone isn't willing to do that with you, um, they may not be an ideal partner um, because it means that, you know, they're not emotionally capable of dealing with hard things and things can snowball pretty significantly. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure Malcolm trained me as a partner more than I trained him because he had many other partners um, before uh, he met me and I had not dated before. <laughs> um, but he sort of knew um, like red flag behaviors to look out for. And as soon as they came up, he was like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this. We need to do it this other way because I know where this is going. And I think that's really helpful. Right, right. And a lot of the cases 
maybe this would be better to ask him, but do you know if many of those cases, those can actually be resolved? Or like what percentage of the time is that just, you know, oh, a red flag that you should be stopping the relationship? 100% resolved. I mean, there, I'm surely he's he's halted other relationships or ended other relationships because they didn't work out. Um, but, you know, a lot of it also comes down to argumentative style. Um, a, there's this, I think, truism that that relationships are all about compromise and that everyone just has to find a good compromise to mismatched expectations and uh, desires. And that is so wrong. Um, and so that's that's mm. another thing that I think goes into partner training is you have to you have to get around that and just decide. I mean, what, one thing that we do is we, we essentially divide up domains in the relationship where one partner always is the final call period. So like with regard to pretty much all big decisions in, in our lives, Malcolm has the final call. Um, and with a whole a bunch of like sort of smaller administrative decisions, I have the final call and it sounds very unequal. It sounds, um, it sounds possibly even abusive. Like people talk about financial abuse, right? And like, oh, well, you so-and-so like had control over all our money and that was abusive. Um, and it can be absolutely, it can be. Um, but in a functional relationship, when you get rid of compromise and you switch to a model of what we could call submission, which is interesting, um, you you actually get much better outcomes. So let's let's look at why compromise sucks as hard as it does. When you compromise, you've got two people who are now incentivized to um, exaggerate their desires. So if mm. you want a four and I want a seven, you're going to say you want a zero, and I'm going to say I want a thirteen because we need we know that we're going to have to you know negotiate down right. So we're gonna we're gonna set a different high point. Um, that ultimately can lead us to even subconsciously start to hold those more extreme views and resent the other partner for pulling us away from them. Mm. And it also in, in, encourages people to think about relationships antagonistically when really a good relationship is about having shared values, a shared destination, shared goals, and everything is about what's for the what's for the what's best for the relationship, what's best for the family, what's best for our shared values and our ultimate outcome. So when you drop compromise, view the relationship as a unified whole with a shared objective function, and look at problems or conflicts as a uh, basically differences in opinion on how to best achieve that outcome, uh, you get much better outcomes, much more optimal outcomes. And also um, sort of separately, somewhat related, when you give the other partner final say in something, you know that, I mean, technically they don't have total, total final say. If If they abuse that power, you will leave the relationship. You know, the relationship will end. So the partner knows that with great power comes great responsibility. And what typically happens is they will deal with the decisions they make unilaterally with much more um, generosity toward the other party than toward themselves. So if a decision comes down to something that makes either me or you more comfortable and I have the final call, I'm probably going to go with whatever decision or ultimate conclusion makes you slightly more comfortable because I know that I have all the power here and that if I keep making decisions in my favor, the relationship will just end. Um, so it's, I think it's really important to allow for those domains to get divided up and to give people full control over certain things to have total power. Um, and it's, 
it's really interesting to me how this sort of dovetails with the idea of being traditional couples or being a trad wife, for example. And like, oh, I submit to my husband. He is better in all things and he's smarter and he's stronger. And it's not that. Like, sub submission doesn't have to be this like either trad wifey, super feminine, um, or like cucked husband thing or BDSM thing of like, oh yes, submit. Uh, it's, it's very different. Um, I think it's more that you just have to find where each partner is technically better. Malcolm is technically smarter than me. He is better at strategy. He is better at big picture thinking. He sucks at execution. So I own execution. <laughs> and you know, it's it's okay for me to say, yeah, I'm going to submit to Malcolm on all big life decisions because I know he's better at them. And that doesn't make me like a trad wife where I'm like, men are just smarter and better. It's just, I know, I know he's better than that. And both of us want the same outcome. So we're going to have him make those decisions because I don't want to mess them up. And we have me execute everything because he doesn't want to mess that up. Right, right. Uh, you heard it here, folks, guys. You you heard it here first, folks. Okay, all of you at home. I know there are several senior level Senate Senate staffers listening here. No more compromises. No more. None. Zero. Zero compromises. And compromises we will for polarization. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, th this is really interesting, right? This is, I think. You know, a lot of people listen to this show for politics, and I do think like there are a lot of parallels. Like Curtis, Curtis Yarvin was here talking about, you know, if you wanted, if Trump supporters, if populists really wanted power, they would have delegate, you know, absolute authority to like the Trump app. Yeah, hmm. I do think, I do think in a lot of these situations, decisiveness is better as long as, as long as that decisiveness is kind of like not negatively incentivized, mm -hmm. right? That there's a version where like decisiveness just turns into like rule by the worst people mm -hmm. um, where if, if the, like the actual mechanisms that select who is ruling, let's say in a government bureaucracy, right. If the actual part, uh, mechanism that selects who is ruling is negative, then you, in that case, you don't want decisiveness because you basically don't want them to do anything. But in a lot of cases where, where that selection mechanism is positive or even neutral in many cases, then um, yeah, then having, then having that kind of decisive action, I think is preferable. Absolutely. And, right. you know, it's and about checks and balances. That, you would hope that, you know, if you've done the first few steps, then your your dating habits falls under that category. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, it's, you know, you have to find someone dating, we would argue, proper pairing off, proper pair bonding, or if you want to enter a polycule, like that's fine too. Like any sort of, you know, embarking on a long-term committed relationship with one or more people should be more like a business arrangement than some kind of romantic relationship. And we would argue that romantic, uh, romantically incentivized relationship pair bonding is, was never the norm. You know, marriages were always about business and alignment. You know, you, you married someone and worked on a farm together or baked bread together or brewed beer and sold it, um, or had some small cottage industry and choosing a spouse was about choosing someone who was likely to be, productive and to work well with you and to be trustworthy and predictable and not about, you know, who made you feel excited or who, you know, was the sexiest. That's just not, that's not what relationships were all about. Right, right. Yeah. Mary Harrington has this quote of like abolish big romance, <laughs> abolish the kind of, you know, like late night candlelit dinner 
kind of thing, a kind of basically narrative satisfaction that a lot of people get. Um, yeah, save yeah. it for the romance novels. Save it for porn. <laughs> yeah, I technology. think I remember. I remember. I think. Okay, I'm trying to recall the Mary Harrington case right now. She she expands upon it in her new book, which uh, I have not read. I'm not sure if it's out for the general public yet, hmm. but I have not read. Uh, but is the, the main idea is basically that big romance kind of came in as a substitute for basically a more peaceable lifestyle, right? That you basically had a lifestyle where that were really naturally much more in women's interests in terms of the kind of dating marketplace in terms of like it, for, for many women, the kind of work marketplace, right? Like the actual marketplace. Right. And that as that's disappeared, basically because of this kind of process of, um, of uh, enclosure around like the, around like basically the labor of half the population, uh, big romance came in as a sort of substitute. Right. I'm mm. not sure if I'm completely representing that correctly, but something along those lines, right? So so what do you think of that? Do you do you think that that's the case? That so if I understand correctly that that romance came in with like the rise of feminism and the fall of of like yeah, or more traditional as, relationships. So the case of the book is that feminism is basically a a, a reaction to industrialization, hmm. right? Um so I think it would more be like that feminism and big romance kind of have similar purposes that they kind of accompl- accomplish things in a similar direction and both of them are responding to basically industrial labor pressures. Yeah, I don't know. I mean that's that's a model and I'm sure it's a model that predicts a lot of things. I I would argue that a better model would just be like the general rise of of capitalism, the general empowerment of women and, and equalization of of gender rights in general, um, and the focus on hedonic well being over other things. You know, the the goal in the past, and again, you see this in these like instructional nineteen fifties videos. Um, I don't know if you do show notes, but I can like send you a link to my yeah, playlist, so sure. people can for watch sure. them. They're so amazing because they really show a focus in life on becoming a productive adult, on having a family, on navigating difficulties. It wasn't about being happy or having good mental health or, you know, thriving creatively. It was about, you know, becoming a productive unit in society. And and that meant having a family and contributing to society, but most importantly, supporting your family and not being a drain on society. Um, Right. And I would say that that's the bigger, that's the bigger force with that downfall. You know, people turned away from that life because it required work. People turned away from that life because it required, uh, compromises. You know, none of the ideal scenarios that is shown in these videos that were shown to students in the fifties and sixties, um, implies that you're going to end up with someone who you're head over heels in love with, who, you know, you have a whirlwind romance with and travel the world with and do all these romantic things with. Um, it's, it's about, you know, navigating how awkward it is to, you know, deal with someone's like, uh, your, your husband's mother, once you get married and how she's, you know, snooping around and it's kind of stressful and your husband doesn't really get it, but you have to figure out how to deal with it because that's life. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Um, so I would say, yeah, it's, it's a focus on hedonism. It's a focus on that, that same sort of predominating progressive value proposition that Malcolm and I posit, which is again, 
We want you to be happy in your lifetime. No hurt feelings, no bad feelings. Bad feelings are bad. We don't really care about meaning or accomplishment or having kids or necessarily contributing economic value to the society or supporting a family. We just care about how you feel now and we'll protect that. Right. In a way, those are also kind of arbitrage ideologies. Mm, yeah. Right? Or it's like, it's it's kind of like, you know, basically shorting a company. Um, it's kind of like shorting the social trust levels, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is this kind of short-term gain, which, I mean, like, would you argue it would be better if that didn't play itself out? I mean, it has to play itself out now. Um, and we'll see how it goes. Right. But again, I, I feel like we're seeing with Gen Z, a backlash against that romance. And we're seeing more interest in um, relationship realism, gender realism. um, Right, right. But it's coming in this kind of like post-ironic form, right? Like, Is it? It feels earnest to me. Sorry? Oh, I guess post-ironic is more earnest. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So, so, right. Uh, At this point, several people have talked about this, but it's this kind of like, yeah, this kind of very ironic thing. I'm also like this. I'm a lot more like this in person than on the podcast, actually. I try to be much more serious in the podcast. But, like, the thing that I'll do, the thing that's only kind of viable in a s- severely distorted media environment is that it will, I will, like, lob things at, like, the center of the probability distribution, okay. but in, like, an extremely ironic tone, right? So I'll talk about, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, like... um I'll talk about equilibria and dating market, right? And I'll be like, you know, there are two, there are literally only two equilibria and one is kind of like, one is kind of like polygamy, you know, massive, basically massive industrial scale harms. And the other is like basically, you know, and and the other is basically, you know, arranged marriages. Hmm. And I say this, I, I say this like sarcastically, right? But if you play the game theory out, it actually is a bimodal distribution around those two things, right? Obviously, hmm. you know, those are not necessarily going to be converged upon b- before the technology changes or the social circumstances change- changes. But like that is, I think, like a center of the probability distribution thing, right? It's at least more likely than any other alternative, once again, given those assumptions. Yeah. Like, that I think is something that happens extremely frequently in terms of dating connotations, right? We talked about this a little bit in terms of trad, in terms of like the online, right? The kind of e-right. There is this basically like valorization of pre-traditional uh, or not even like traditional, but, you know, like uh, behavior patterns or like dating norms from like 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they'll do it in this like very funny way, but they'll also like actually adhere to all of them, right? They'll see like, oh, isn't it so funny that, you know, I'm not having premarital sex and I'm actually paying attention (laughs) to my partner and I'm trying to find, and and I'm trying to find, you know, people who have practical, who who have these kind of practical desires. They say this in like, you know, humorous TikTok accent, Right. But I'm yeah. also actually doing it. Yeah, that's they mean the kind it. of like post irony that's happening. That's what that's what's so cool about Gen Z though, is like they see how like dumb it is or like how like weird it is that they're doing it, but they're doing it because they see some value in it. And I really like this awareness with which Gen Z is riding different waves that had wiped out other generations. Like there's this this level of inoculation 
that they're coming into things with. And I think they're going to, they're going to thrive. I don't think it's inoculation. I think it's poisoning. I don't think they know how to deal with it in the sincere way. So you think that they're like interested in monogamy um, and, and uh, not having sex before marriage um, in a, in a bad way. No, no, I don't think it's, it's bad, right? It's ultimately, it's kind of like, it's like, um, it's like how Nietzsche talks about religion, right? Nietzsche says like, God is dead because basically it's it, religion has become incompatible with the way that everyone lives their life. Right. Mm. And I think it's the same thing here where kind of like seriousness has become incompatible with the way people live their lives with like internet memes and all of these kind of uh, self-referential jokes, um, even in their kind of like in real life interactions. Right. So you can't just be like completely sincere about it, but you can like mm. embed your sincere beliefs within the kind of ironic gesture. Mm. Oh, and is that beautiful? Out, right? This is kind of, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like the ultimate version of this, right, is like we will be- believe in religion because it is, it is evolutionarily adaptive, which is kind of what you and Malcolm are doing as well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of Jordan Peterson. That's sort of like, um, that's sort of like Jonathan Pajot, right? A lot of the Peterson circle is exactly this. The big question, right, is that whether this kind of um, th- this kind of post-ironic um, religion or dating or social norms can ever replicate the real thing, right? I, I think you're of the case that it can it can not only replicate the real thing but be better. Yes. Uh, convince me of that. <laughs> yes. No. I, I think I think if anything, the the irony is an affectation that we just use because we're in an age in which you feel very self-conscious for being genuine because that is that is interpreted as being cringe. And I see a lot of people discuss this false dichotomy. I think it's a false dichotomy between being based and being cringe. It's all a matter of perspective, but I think we live in an age that is um there are far more very smart people than there are very brave people and there are far more very self-conscious people than there are unapologetically themselves people. And so this irony is just a shield, Um, but really it's all surface level stuff. And in the end, when people live their lives, actions speak louder than words. And we're going to see actions that, you know, follow these new religions, these new ways of life that are very genuine. And I don't care if people will do, do these things in an ironic way, as long as they're doing them. Right, right. This is this is the thing, right? This is maybe where this is the thing I agreed with Malcolm the most on, and I think you'll agree with it a lot as well, is this idea of like selection effects, right? That the kind of that everything you do is basically some applying some kind of filter. Not not just in mm-hmm. dating, but in like everything. Mm. Right? In like friendships. I wrote an article recently telling basically saying like basically like if if you are like anywhere near kind of dissident politics you should write with your real name uh, <sighs> and in fact like the more dissident you are the more you should write with your real name because like this this is just a kind of behavior pattern that attracts better people hmm. right like i'm kind of in the situation where i have too many people to interact i have like too many friends basically right and basically just or like having people on the podcast who are like significantly more right wing than I am is mm-hmm. actually a very good push, right? It's a very good push of method of pushing away people who are just, you know, like not really capable of dealing with important issues, right? Who are basically unable to process certain things and who 
consequently, I don't want, I don't want to have to deal with. And that kind of selection effect, I think, is just so important. Now, so now wait, why, irony... why are you against Sorry. people hiding their real names, for example? So like, you, you like right, white, sorry, you like right wing, but you're, you like wouldn't have. I don't necessarily or... like, I don't know, like right wing is so vague, but like in, in general, right? I think there are a greater percentage in the current time that we are in, there are a greater percentage of right-wing ideas and left-wing ideas that are correct, yeah. Huh. But then, but so, so many does, of them are incorrect. Where does using your own name factor into this and become important? Right, it's because it creates basically like a recruiting effect, right? Like, mm. at the end of the day, even if you spend a lot of time online, you're still going to places, you're still talking to people, you still have a local scene. And to me, that local scene is incredibly important. But what about BAP? What about... Um, raw egg nationalist. What about all these people who are totally pseudonymous but have pretty big followings and I would say are pretty influential? Yeah, like if you can, if you're like infinitely famous, then maybe the diminishing returns on like not having a local scene, or maybe you can construct a local scene even despite being pseudonymous. Like, okay. In that case, you're already like, you know, you're suffering from success. You're already, you're already winning, right? Um, in the case of like, Quite frankly, I think I'm like still like maybe at least one order of magnitude less uh, less well known than him, right? This is a way for basically people who are sympathetic and like in in real life circles that overlap to to find me and to know me. Like if I were if I were pseudonymous, there are a lot of interesting people who I now talk to, you know, every single week who would just not know. Like that would just be like maybe they would pass by me every single day. And, you know, not realize that this is a person that they follow on Twitter, right? Hmm. And that's... So, yeah, I, I do bad. agree. Yeah, yeah, because I want to be able to talk to them every day. They contribute a lot uh, to my thinking. Uh, 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 it's like an opportunity cost, right? Uh, and and, you, and you, don't, you don't seem to invest as much in uh, parasocial relationships as I do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I do, I do listen to podcasts. I actually do. Like, I did have a like a very small parasocial relationship with you as well, right? I did prep for this podcast. I don't know if you would call that a parasocial relationship. Um, but yeah, I don't, hmm, I, I just like most podcasts. There are a few that I like. I've talked about them on, on the newsletter as well. But the, the, the problem that I have with podcasts is that a lot of it is kind of like undirected, Right. A lot of it is like, okay, tell me about your life. Tell me about how you grew up. Actually, I talk about this. I'm not sure if this podcast will come. This will probably be either the podcast immediately before or immediately after this podcast where I talk to Dwarkesh Patel. But we talk to this and talk about this in more detail. He's also a podcaster in a similar niche as me. Hmm. Um, yeah, I do think. And his podcast is one of the good ones. I, I should mention that. Um, but yeah, a lot of podcasts are just like, they are just, you know, like point, 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 point. And it's like, so it, it really reeks of sort of wanting to know things for the sake of knowing things and not actually having any idea whether those things are useful or not. And and that's like a problem that I think I don't completely solve in this podcast either. I think I solve it partially. I think I do better than the competition in, in kind of establishing that very clear direction and what I hope to accomplish. 
but at the same time, like I do think it's sort of something that's just inherent to the medium. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll agree and disagree. I think some podcasts are very targeted, like Huberman Lab podcast, right? You know, that, like I can just pick out a random podcast and be like, okay, how do I deal? Like, what's the best way to optimize male hormones? Bam, like I will get a lot of interesting research and speculation and, you know, very targeted, right. advice. I think that podcasts like yours, um, people turn to for that meandering orthogonality that spending time around smart people produces, where you get introduced to the unknown unknown um, by allowing people to kind of meander and explore and see where that all takes them. So there's a place for all these things. Um, and, and you don't necessarily need to personally know or interact with these people to glean either non-actionable, but very mind expanding um, information or very actionable information. Hmm. But this is, it, you know, I'm, I'm realizing like, as we talk, I'm, I'm coming across as like very in favor of like permanent inceldom and living alone forever and just like integrating with the internet and AI and being absorbed into it. Um, when, I mean, obviously like Malcolm and I represent the faction that is very much in favor of, of, you know, arguably where you're more leaning, which is to have like meet space relationships with people, um, and to do things in person and make things quote unquote real in the sense where like there is an actual product of your, of your work and interactions. So, you know, it's not like I'm against these things. I just see the very strong and compelling reasons why this more ephemeral, um, super tech enabled, but atomized life, uh, offers. Yeah. I, I, I think like, right. What's interesting is that I've never, I've never used the, the apps before. I don't think it's either good or necessary. Uh, that might change actually. That might change if I go somewhere where there's not as much of a scene. Right. But just like, there are so many in-person events. You can just mm. go to in-person events. Like, be someone with like three interests, right? And you can just go to all of the person, like the in-person events. And that will be like totally consuming all of your time already. Like the, just the people you meet there. Yeah, um, but if you're, you're like, someone, you're sorry, a socially healthy person. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, I, do you know the amount of anxiety that I undergo to like, and I do it anyway, right, but like, right. I don't want to go to in-person events. That's terrible. I will have to interact with people in person. Like, <laughs> and, and, and this is, I feel like my general mindset is more pervasive than you might think. And there are a lot right, of, yeah, I definitely do think this is this, a common but, thing. Yeah. I, I'm not laughing because this is extreme. I'm laughing because it's all too familiar with people <laughs> who I know and love. <laughs> yeah. 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 And now we yeah, just, I mean, in, in the past, people like me had to go out and actually interact with people. Whereas now, especially post-pandemic, people like me have all these excuses to never do it. Sorry, right, Titan right. Invictus is joining in a little bit, but she's happy. <laughs> nice. Hikikomori as a kind of national duty. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a lifestyle. It is It is a luxury lifestyle. Right. I do think that the pandemic kind of gave that people the social justification, right? There are these posts online as well of people saying like, oh, I want, uh, I want, you know, mask mandates so that people won't 
you know, be able to see my face and won't be able to, to judge me based on that. It's like, what kind of narrow mindedness is like, on, on one hand, like I can kind of see it, but on the other, like I can kind of see why that's, that's, that's like appealing in a psychological way. I definitely see that. On the other hand, like many of these people are already incredibly smart are, you know, fairly high income. Are are the people who are like capable of learning, right? Yeah. And are also are, and are also I do think it's been expanding, but I think are also the minority. I do think there needs to be a kind of more of an expansion of meat space into like basically, you know, reintegrating people who are like very smart. They're, they're, once again, like this goes back to noblesse oblige, right? Maybe I'll mm. make the case for the moral version of noblesse oblige, not just the kind of like post ironic evolutionary version. <laughs> right. Like th- I do think like, basically if you're not like, I, I do think this is basically like, I, I say like case, but this is basically just stating an axiom that if you're like detached from the things that normal people feel and that normal people kind of want to enjoy in life, that you're basically like, you're 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 either going to be like incredibly depressed or like a despot and there's no in between i don't know how much that has not been the norm for the vast majority of human history though like that there's always been you know a disproportionate minority like a, a minority that disproportionately influences certain things and that's lumpy, you know, like it, it, it varies. I'm not right, saying right. that like, is always going to be an elite and that elite is always going to be different. But the question yeah. is whether they should feel like a sense of service, right? A sense of noblesse oblige, hmm. like I said. Yeah, no. And I'm, I'm all for like bringing that back. Um, I, I think that that existed in early America much more than it existed now. And I would love to for see sure. it return and that, you know, culturally, did you know that even the, um, the, the word condescend um, used to be seen as is kind of like as noblesse oblige, like to hmm, to condescend to someone would would be to kind of patronize them, but kindly um, and <laughs> and generously, um, which which just sounds terrible. But I mean, like, no, I'm I'm all for that. I'm all for seeing your privilege as as um as as being an important thing that you should use to do good. I think that there's a, an interesting paradox with modern society and privilege. Because to a certain extent, if we were to acknowledge noblesse oblige, that kind of also suggests that those that we are obligated to serve or help are like, I don't know, less educated or resourced than us. And that's kind of like insulting to them. So like we're robbing them of their dignity. So maybe we can't help them because how dare we? Like, who are we to help them um, or impose I'm just our also, values on yeah, them? I'm just also more in favor of just admitting that there are genetic differences. Like, I think that like, I don't think that kind of denial really helps here, especially with the kind of social patterns that we're seeing now. You know, I just recently had my friend Rob Henderson on again. He talks about this idea of luxury beliefs. Mm -hmm. I really do think like egalitarianism is this incredibly destructive thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not just because it destroys noblesse oblige and makes people kind of signal in ways that don't actually help the working class instead of, you know, helping the working class but also because it basically defers thing into these kind of like negative sum social competitions, right? Well, like- and there's no such thing, right? There's no such thing as genuine equality, which is what we're seeing with intersectionality that, you know, as people fight for equality, they're finding all these different ways to show that, oh no, actually, you know, I, 
I am, I deserve higher status because of this thing. And if we actually have it equal, we need to have it equal in this way. And one of my favorite books is probably a relatively obscure book called Policy Paradox by Deborah Stone. Um, in it, she has a chapter on equality and how much of a farce it is. And she, she uses this metaphor of slicing up a cake, like a, a professor brings a cake into class and she needs to divide it equally among students. But then what does that mean? Is this equal proportions among students or is it based on who's the most hungry, who gets the best grades, who cares about cake the most, who showed up first? Um, who's the most fat, who's the most skinny. Like there are all different ways that you can make something equal and there's no way for anything to be equal on all dimensions. So, I mean, even just the idea of trying to pursue equality seems so like messed up to me um, that like, I don't know, it's just not possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, Carl Schmidt, right? Very very centrist philosopher, um, you know, said sovereign is he who decides the exception, right? And of course, in all fleece bureaucracies, it's not like there is some neutral god that is deciding who is most befitting of redistribution. It is, it is uh, people with ideologies, with loyalties, with friends and enemies who are deciding these things. Um, <laughs> there's your, there, there's the dissident right posting for the audience. Um, yeah, I, I think like, hmm, the, what's very interesting is that like, well, egalitarianism may not actually result in egalitarianism. It is kind of destructive of like merit, right? It transfers basically explicit competition into implicit competition. It turns these games of like, you know, like there is a bit of social competition in basically determining who is most strong, but at the end of the day, that is actually something that's measurable, right? Like at the end of the day, like if you get in a bar fight with someone, you know, you might lose. <laughs> um, and yeah, this is kind of like purely social version that I think egalitarianism favors. Basically, basically incentivizes competing in ways that are completely negative to some, like social ostracization, purity tests, and so on, as opposed to say like competing on who can be more successful in business, who can be more um, more successful militarily, right? These things that, like, once again, once again, like, you can pretend to be better at, you know, you can pretend to be richer than you actually are, right? There are many, you know, many famous people, um, possibly real estate developers, uh, <laughs> who, who, who pretend to be richer than they actually are. But at the end of the day, that's incentivizing something. Like, you're always going to have fakery, but, it, like, what are the what are the kind of eventual societal... Uh, what are the externalities of that kind of social competition? And the kind of like capitalist version, right, is that in many cases you incentivize people to build successful companies. And I think most companies are kind of real companies as opposed to, you know, like Ponzi schemes or whatever. Like you, you can get both of that. You can acknowledge their costs and benefits. But I think that type of competition just significantly incentivizes much more benefits than costs as opposed to like the modern kind of social climbing where it is basically like how, how large of, of the population can you scapegoat? Yeah, that's interesting. And and maybe also what equality or attempts at equality creates is, is more like the same kind of negative or a similar negative externality to what compromise creates, you know, which is just getting people more competitive in the end and not so much focused on a shared goal. Um, but rather focused right, on right. their individual needs. And it's kind of ironic, right? I mean, when you think about equality as a general principle, you think, oh, it's pro-social, it's good for society. 
Um, but actually, this is really interesting. Um, have you seen the little, like the experiments with capuchin, I think they're capuchin monkeys and grapes. And yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. Explain it for the audience. Yeah. So you can watch this on YouTube where, um, monkeys in separate cages where they can see each other are being compensated for a simple task with, um, what is it like raisins and grapes or something? Basically two different types of treats. And at first they're compensated for the same, with the same work with the same reward. So each gets, you know, a, like I think a raisin or something or whatever, a, a, an inferior treat, but an okay treat for, for work. And then at one point, one of the monkeys starts getting for the same work, a better treat. And he just loses his mind. Um, and, and you see that this concept of fairness, which you could argue is kind of, you know, associated with this concept of equality, um, is something that exists in pretty much any group oriented species, um, where, you know, you're seeing that there's something not quite equal and that th there is no like moral high ground that this concept of fairness has or that this concept of equality has. It's really just an evolved trait that, kind of punishes um, non-pro-social behavior in a cooperative group of mammals. Um, and I, I just find it really interesting that we would therefore try to pursue equality because intuitively it feels right when ultimately it can produce some pretty adverse effects. Um, and we need to parse out the difference between intuition and what feels right and actual outcomes, but we're not very good at doing that. Yeah, I mean, like, this is... You know, like, this is kind of a modern confirmation, basically, of Hobbes, right? Hobbes says that, like, man is equal because, basically, like, people can plot to kill each other. <laughs> man is equal because of crime uh, in the state of nature, right? That, that's, his, that's his idea. And this has been kind of confirmed by, yeah, those kind of, like, uh, evolutionary psychology understandings of perceptions of equality. It's basically, you know, like, if... You can very clearly see the evolutionary logic here of basically if you're about to be outcompeted, then you know who cares if we do a little a little crime, right? Uh, yeah, like that is also that's also like experiments with basically. I know this is like yeah, this is something that Peterson mentions a lot, but basically, you know, monkeys that gang up to kill a stronger male. Right. If that, per if that male has, has much more mates than the kind of, uh, monkeys that, that kill him. Uh, yeah. Like when crime is an option, egalitarianism is sort of correct. Right? It's <laughs> yeah. kind of correct in a kind of local, local minima in that you can, you can in the short term increase your ability to, uh, to find a mate, to persist into the future, right? To, to, uh, to persist your genes. But of course, in the long run, that completely destroys complexity, that completely destroys, you know, economies of scale that actually, you know, actually um, benefit people much more and give people much more, um, much more of a frontier, much more resources to actually uh, increase the carrying capacity, right? So you, you have this kind of tension between going back all the way to the beginning of evolutionary mismatch, like, to me, egalitarianism is sort of like the peak of evolutionary mismatch, where this kind of instinct preserved in pretty much like high crime societies is now being ported over to like how people understand economics, right? To how people understand like giving people apples for oranges, right? And that, you know, that, that actually generates, it's, it's this kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? Where if you have too much egalitarian instinct that generates the high crime society and that actually justifies the, uh, egalitarian instincts to begin with. 
Whereas, you know, in the, in the, this, it really is kind of like the miracle of people continuing to uh, exist in kind of positive some societies where those kind of egalitarian and egalitarian instincts are sort of sheathed. Sorry, I, I know I just went on a monologue. No, I like it. Um, I, I, I think the larger issue is that people are putting emotions and intuition above logic. And we're reaching a point at which we need to start divorcing our biologically involved instincts from what we consider to be optimal outcomes. Because again, and this, this all comes back to culture, which is so interesting, right? Is that we've, we've entered an era in which um, a lot of our historical inherited cultural and religious institutions have dissolved. And that is not good because that just leaves us with our biological uh, intuitions and traditions and tendencies. And that's not, that's a really big problem, right? Because like I said, at the beginning of our conversation, we evolved culture and religion and traditions to help us evolve more quickly than biology allows us to evolve. But when we suddenly drop that part of our collective software and hardware, we, we no longer are able to function in complex uh, societies that are larger than like small, small tribes of humans, you know, cause we had time to evolve for that. We haven't had time to evolve for cities, let alone for like nation states, for globalization, for technology. So that's but again, we have a culture. Are so bullish on culture as a solution to these things. We have an evolved culture though. And that culture is, you know, like left liberalism. <laughs> like, that is it? Is I mean, when I, when we talk about culture, we're talking about like religions that are thousands of years old that have evolved kind of organically a lot of tendencies um, that help to build mental resilience and fitness that we may not even really understand. You know, like fasting. Originally, people thought that that was like totally ridiculous. Religions would have all these fasting holidays and traditions. And then now everyone's on intermittent fasting and doing all these crazy things because they realize, oh, wait, this this has benefits. Like these are longer things and you're describing even newer technologies and they're not all encompassing either. They're not ways of life. Right. Well, well, this is the kind of Nietzschean critique of uh, Christianity, right? Like the Nietzschean critique of Christianity is that it valorizes, you know, victimization. And this is like very old, right? This is, you know, thousands of years old. Um, it valorizes victimization. It valorizes, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, Right. It creates this basically pressure. It, it starts the kind of it starts the kind of evolutionary ratchet towards you know the exact type of grievance culture we have today, right? That, so that's like the Nietzschean critique of Christianity. I'm not sure uh, how much I agree with it, but what, what do you think of of that critique? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not that familiar with his critique. I understand that there are some elements of Christianity that, like you know, have have yielded elements that have evolved into maybe the worst parts of wokeism. Um, like Malcolm argues that he thinks that um, Hicksite Quakers um, kind of like part of that culture split off into what has become a sterilizing meme that has taken over woke culture, for example, and made it very non-functional and sort of separated out everything that was functional and progressive about it and just made it about growing. Um, 
But, you know, I wouldn't say that just because there is this element of Christianity that has to do with valorizing victimhood or meekness or charity doesn't mean that there aren't other elements of the Christian tradition that are extremely strong. Um, so, you know, I, I think he's he might be cherry picking like not so great parts that have led to more damage and ignoring parts that have imparted a lot of fitness over generations. I mean, Christianity is a very large religion for a reason. You know, there are other religions that never survived that long. So, you know, you have to look at the numbers to a certain extent. And I think, okay, yeah, Christianity is is now hitting a phase where it's been put at a lot of risk due to, you know, the introduction of a lot of technologies that it hasn't evolved to deal with. But pretty much every major religion is hitting that too, you know, including um, Islam. I mean, Buddhism, like uh, everything, everything is being hit by this. No culture is able to deal with it well. But yeah, I mean, you can't just like point out a couple of things that are bad about one religion and say that that makes it overall something that doesn't impart fitness when, you know, it has, it has spread through repopulation very, very well so far. Right, right. Yeah. When I, when I talk to like Nietzschean people on the Nietzschean rights, uh, I, I often use the phrase like Christianity was the, was not the river, it was the dam, right? Which I slightly borrowed from Michael Malice, who talked about the same thing in the context of like Trumpism, right? So, so like the idea is that, you know, you have these kind of evolutionary, um, tendencies to commit like basically egalitarian crimes and like that, that long predated Christianity. And, and basically you needed Christianity to contain that impulse even if you know that impulse manifests in other ways and yeah like like you look at you look at rome right the scale of civilization which was much lower the scale of people who were actually able to make kind of like cognitive decisions was much lower yeah like there's an argument there where you need you need christianity to actually do that kind of to do that kind of scaling and to kind of uh redirect those impulses to uh to somewhere else yeah like you can argue we we talk about how kind of technically or not technically but like uh naturally humans sort into very polygamous societies um right right, and yet monogamous societies have become much more pervasive why because a society that has more forced monogamy which is one of the you know beneficial traits or i guess you could say like pro societal growth traits that christianity has come to feature uh, reduces the number of free radicals that you have moving around in society with free radicals being defined as unattached males who are becoming very sexually frustrated for not having partners. Um, so, right. you know, by, by reducing that inequality, which, you know, arguably we're experiencing right now, right. With like so many men, um, you know, se- rates of sex plummeting, many men ending up uncoupled um, by, by having a culture that forces more monogamy you know, you're going to end up with more stable and therefore more productive societies with lower rates of crime, rape, terrorism, all sorts of social ills. Right. So, so you talk about, yeah, you, you talk about this as uh, something that maybe you disagree with Malcolm on, right? Like the the impact of of uh, Christianity on um, on current social trends. I, I, I don't really like using the term woke anymore. My friend, Angel Eduardo, who's been on this podcast talked about this on on uh, an article he wrote I, th- I think in colette but i'm not sure where it just means too many different things to different people you know like some people consider like classical socialists woke i, d- I, d- I don't consider uh them woke I-, I narrow it you know there's one of those memes to be made right i should i should make this meme you know right after we finish this conversation of like you know like the D alignment char- charts of like <laughs> versions of woke definitions of woke yeah um yeah, yeah. It, it's just like too, too, 
um, it is too charged too malleable, and it's too much term. of a rainbow. Yeah, and I think like there, there's another thing that happens here. I know this is not too related, but I want to talk about in a little bit of a digression. There is a kind of law. This is something that like the right likes to to admit and the left likes to admit. At least the social justice left, but like the centrists and like the IDW do not like to admit is that there is a kind of continuity between basically like civil rights law and like and wokeness, right? There is a pretty direct continuity of that kind of desire to uh, to equalize outcomes. There is that is part of the kind of civil rights tradition, and you know if, if you're against that, you should just swallow the kind of bitter pill that like actually the Civil Rights Act was a mistake, right? And there are many people who are maybe more right wing, although some people who are like libertarians who admit this too, right? Like Christopher Caldwell, Richard Hanania, right? All of the stuff they do is great. Um, where, yeah, I I do think like the the thing that happens here is basically. Like, there's a moderate version of it, and there's, like, the extreme version of it, and those things are directly tied together. And only the extremes, or only the, either, like, the moderates of the people who oppose it, or, like, the extremists who support it, want to draw that connection. Whereas you basically have, you know, like, the Andrew Sullivans of the world, or, like, the Barry Weisses of the world saying, like, oh, there's, like, you know, we can have LGB without without like all the extreme transgender stuff uh like like that is not i I think that's pretty um i don't think it's dishonest but i do think they're just wrong right i I do think that's an error yeah i'd say how malcolm and i just to like disambiguate or define the version of wokeism that we talk about um we would we would say that there's a difference between broadly progressive values social reform feminism um, LGBTQ, whatever rights you want to discuss and what we've seen spreading more virulently throughout society. Um, and we would argue that what we're talking about when we talk about wokeism isn't those pro-social values that we see spreading, um, but rather uh, sort of a, a self-replicating virus that is really more about just spreading a certain type of culture, um, falsely using a fake value proposition um, actually to the detriment of the proposed values that it, it says it will protect. So we, we kind of, have you, what, like what are the of... proposed values that it's supposed to protect? Yeah. So the proposed, the proposed values, oh, Titan Invictus does not like wokeism. The proposed values are things <laughs> like feminism, LGBT rights, um, you know, um, stopping, um, uh, very insidious forms of racism and inequality. Um, so things like that, you know, um, various missions people agree with them people don't um but what we what we're concerned about isn't those missions but rather the the mimetic alien that has crash landed onto our earth and that has killed many of the institutions professing to fight for these things and worn their skin like a billy suit and walked around them pretending to protect their values while really just focusing on taking over and growing and gaining more resources so, you know, kind of like how um, strep throat viruses will kill cells and then pretend to be them essentially to evade detection and, and just grow that way. So it's it's really like zombification or like taking over these these bodies in a very creepy way um, and then and then uh, perverting the purpose of these organizations. That's what we're talking about. So we're not even talking about progressive agendas. We're talking about a a mimetic virus that has grown and become very powerful um, because it has grown in 
in the like petri dish that is modern um modern internet culture and life where basically a meme can be kind of like how you have like um bacteria or sorry antibiotic resistant staph infections arise in hospitals yeah it's a super bug yeah yeah it's a super bug because it's there it's constantly tested it's constantly tested on weak subjects there's iteration so much iteration it's the maximized version of this Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what this meme is you know in in the face of the internet where there's constant tests and tests and tests you can build very 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 strong memes that can spread really well and why these memes have tacked themselves onto woke culture progressive culture or all these progressive agendas rather than like conservative culture is because progressive agendas are much more open-minded. They're much more willing to, you know, engage with outside ideas and try new tactics, whereas conservative culture is not. So this isn't, you know, it's not a left or right thing. It's not a progressive versus conservative thing. It's just that this particular superbug it has an easier time um, corrupting and using one group over the other. Yeah, this is not just a disagreement in terms. This is like an actual very hard disagreement. You know, there's this there's this like meme that gets circulated on Twitter every once in a while. It's like, when I voted for the lions eating people's faces party, I didn't think the lions would eat my face, right? Like, I think there's a very clear line you can draw between these things that basically uh, basically oppose stigma, oppose social norms, like LGBT, like... Um, many versions of civil rights, right? Definitely the equality of outcome versions, which were part of the original civil rights movement that directly led to basically the decoupling. This is like an Alastair McIntyre case, right? That definitely led, that like explicitly called for the decoupling of virtue and of outcomes. And when you do that, like it, it really is that meme, right? When you decouple like, basically, you know, warm fuzzies from actually accomplishing something, you know, wow, wow, you generated the process, your process generated, you know, the virus that is extremely good at decoupling those things and not actually giving you any virtue. Like, oh my goodness, shocking. This is completely shocking. Like, of course, if you adopt those kind of preferences, if that's actually what you value in society, then, you know, it it goes back to the kind of arbitrage thing, right? You know, I, I think, I really do think like wokeness is just like, you know, people who supported the original civil rights laws getting what they deserve. That's really interesting. And I just, that sounds so Gen Z to me, right? Like that, like here we are these old millennials and we're like, oh yeah, no, we're, we're actually like all for this super progressive stuff. Like let's, let's keep going. But, oh, we're worried that it's been, um, you know, corrupted by some kind of governance related tumor um, and here you are and you're like, uh, uh-uh, no, that's gone too far. Like these people are, I don't know. It's, it's so interesting. I, I never would have expected this direction to be taken and these, um, these general approaches to be, uh, to be coming out of a younger generation than my own. Right. I, I, once again, I would very, I would be very hesitant to extrapolate from, you know, like the distant right or especially for me particularly, right. I'm also not representative of the dissident rights. Um, some of them, you know, are very against a lot of the stuff I have to say, but, um, yeah, I, I, I do think there, okay, well, let's steel man your case once again. I do think there is a kind of, I think Gen Z, the political dynamics of Gen Z is kind of like a lot more autistic, right? It's kind of like, I think like maybe someone who is more, you know, 
I think there's there is a reason why you know kind of a dissident right thought of just you know basically posting the the correlation lines um, has gained more popularity in that like there, there's a sort of like it's like the Twitter dunking dynamic right like people people can po- like you can reply to every single New York Times story with just a chart showing like the relative crime rates by race right like this is just something that that is like a very online thing of like oh this person is obviously wrong and you can kind of ignore the sort of like mimetic power of these kind of like incorrect myths um yes so that's the seal man of this right but i would say that you know this is also something that's just true right if you're trying to socially manufacture outcomes and you're starting from basically this kind of not 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 saying that you are right but i think i do think like the more broadly the supporters of kind of even like the the maybe like 2000s version of social progressivism i think most of them were blank slatists right most of them were people who denied that you know there were genetic differences certainly not between groups yeah and and we're totally we're not blank slatists um you aren't yeah right but like the people most of the support supporters of this kind of like social progressivism were right and still are so I, i really do think like basically you once again, I'm not saying that, you know, like the, the Simone and Malcolm Collins version of, of social progressivism is, is going to result in the same thing as a kind of mainstream version of social progressivism. But, you know, I don't think, you know, maybe, maybe in the future, you know, when the earth is, when like, you know, a third of the world's population are, are the descendants of you two, then we can talk about that version. But with just like the demographics and I don't mean like racial or whatever, but I just mean like the, the, the social, you know, like the the kind of psychological demographics of the type of people who believe in social progressivism right now. Those two things are directly linked. The kind of like arbitrage version of like wokeness and the kind of original civil rights version are are directly linked in that way. There, Yeah, there there is definitely a correlation. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, we can... Oh, Titan. Um, we can definitely like agree to disagree on certain things on this front. And, you know, time will tell, you know, in the end, which, which, which cultures are more sustainable and which views are more sustainable. But I think we have much more in common than we do not in common on these issues. Are, are you sure about that? Like, I think I had a pretty similar interaction with Malcolm as well, where he said something similar. And I don't think so. Like the, I, I don't think like, you know, this is an article I'm in the middle of writing. I'm much more sympathetic to like Curtis Yarvin's term, the hobbits. You know, I, I'm free. I wouldn't say I'm anti-rationalist, but I'm sort of like, there's the kind of rational rationalist mission of basically like this kind of transformatory mission where we change the institutions, where we change the way people are governed. Everyone is going to be more rational, right? Using, you know, whatever social um, well, really, they don't specify much at all, right? Through, you know, donating to open philanthropy or something like that, through, through like legalizing prediction markets. And I do support legalizing prediction markets. Prediction markets are cool. But, you know, I just don't really believe in that there's any kind of realistic transformation in which, beco- in which people become significantly more rational. I think you're always going to have a lot of people deciding almost everything by instinct and that you just have to pick which instincts. 
and that we have picked what in, which instincts and we have changed which instincts we picked across the years. And that most recently, those in, the, the decisions that we've made are wrong. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, but I, I think that maybe what we what we're looking at differently is Malcolm and I look at everything intergenerationally. You know, we're thinking about what what we're going to be like in thousands of years, what our what our children are going to be like. And you're looking at where people are right now. And I agree. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all pretty dumb. We're all making things, you know, um, very instinctive decisions. Um, but I think using cultural technology, social technology, you can get people to make more rational decisions um, or you can build cultural institutions that move people in the right direction and that people are predictably irrational, that you can leverage things like emotion, things like desire, things like laziness um, to your advantage if you're intelligent about it. Um, but, you know, I'm, we're, we're also pessimistic about <laughs> the, the overall caliber of the average person. Um but I think we 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 want to do something about it. Maybe we're wrong that something can be done, but we still think that there there is something we can try to do. Yeah, I think the biggest question, like T- Tyler Cowen has this line, right, where he basically says, like, if AGI is coming, there's nothing we can do to stop it, right? Um, I think that, like, if depopulation is happening to the extent to which, like, significant amounts of the world's population will be made up of people in the index, then like, if that's going to happen, then you're going to get levels of economic collapse that will also destroy the index. And now maybe, you know, maybe you guys have enough, you know, generators and food and so on that that's not quite true. But like, the main point is that like, if there is depopulation to that scale, the world is already so much more miserable that like just from a kind of like probability distribution standpoint, it's just, even if it's like much less likely to succeed, it's, it's just a better strategy to try to stop things from getting to that state in the first place. I think that that's the kind of fundamental disagreement. And that's the reason why I'm kind of much less libertarian on these things. Why I'm much less libertarian in general. Um, which, which is funny, right? All of the dissident or like, actually, I don't know. There is still a degree to which my writing is interpreted as more friendly by both libertarians and dissident right people. But also, yeah, there is beginning like people basically, you know, trying to trying to cast me out of their respective movements for being either too libertarian or or not libertarian enough. Um, Anyway, sorry. Um, The main point, though, the, the main point, though, is like. Yeah, I'm just much more pessimistic that you're. I think you're kind of assuming that humanity has to continue, right? And to me, that that's that's like much more non-trivial. Yeah, what's really interesting is that you what you want to do is introduce like a sort of top-down. We need to solve this problem. We need to p- impose it on everyone. Solution, and Malcolm and I are much more decentralized in our approach. Um, and I think that that almost is indicative of our inherited cultures, right? Like, you know, Malcolm and I are coming from this, this secular Calvinist background of kind of like, you know, we're going to go out on our own and figure it out independently. And that's kind of how we solve problems. Um, Whereas you come from theoretically a more uh, collectivist culture, like it's, it's in your dunna. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Hong Konger. So it's like, you know, it's like China, but 20% more libertarian, uh, maybe more than 20%. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you have those tendencies, you know, you understand the yeah, libertarian sure. argument, but you're also like, nah, man, like humans are too dumb. We got to fix it all as a group. No, no, not, not because they're too dumb. No, that, that is not, oh. you know, I do think some people think that some people think that, right? Okay. But it's, the so reason why do you think is we because like, it's just the equilibrium, mm. right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, it, it's not like people are kind of, like you said, like the alternative, you know, like being basically an antisocial hikikomori mm-hmm. is not like necessarily a bad a bad outcome for them in the yeah. short term yeah right but like for collectively that, they're not for necessarily society making bad. a mistake given their utility function yeah like you just need to change the actual equilibria that are there right yeah. like i'm not you know like they're, they're kind of like i think that curtis is maybe more of this way of just like oh we just need you know like industrial policy central planning that kind of thing like no that's not yeah, like the industrial policy fight, like that's a pretty that's a pretty long fight, nuanced fight. I and do it think there are exceptions, a but lot. in general, that is not where. Sorry, it backfires. I mean, like, yeah, that is that is not where I disagree part. with the libertarians, mm. right? That's you know, like immigration. Um, in many cases, like actual like functioning mar- actual actual like normal like markets for goods and services. That's mm-hmm. not where I disagree with libertarians the place where i disagree with libertarians is like things that basically shape the utility function right Mm. like things things like the kind of parasocial relationship thing like or or things like pornography for Mm. sure things like Mm -hmm. uh, things like sexual norms it's like very clear you know like we've just had basically like the longest longitudinal study of whether like there can be a top-down transformation in sexual norms, at least uh-huh. in one direction, uh-huh. right? And the answer has been yes. Like you can read the Eric Kaufman report. I'll link it in the show notes. There has been basically a much greater rise of LGBT identification that you know suggests that a lot of this is kind of uh, socially influenced. And so, like, there's no reason why that cannot be why that is not an asymmetry that can be had, right? It's like, you just, you just, once again, it's like the classic dissident right thing of just post the correlation line. Now, like maybe that doesn't necessarily imply that it's good to impose these kind of uh, norms. Like you might say, you know, if you basically have like an educational system that suggests more um, like the steel man version of this, right? Is that if you just have, I think like Tyler Cowan raised this as well, that if you basically just have an educational institution that imposes the same kind of uh, heterosexual pressures that you now have, you know, imposing like homosexual pressures, essentially, right? Or transgender pressures that if you reverse that polarity, you know, you'll, you'll like get the out, like you'll lose the Alan Turing's or whatever, right? That's the kind of steel man version of the case. You know, like that might be true. Like that, it might be true that the cost is is worse, and that maybe you know you just need to reset to neutral, even if you're not going to have you know the actively pro homosexual version that you have now. But like, to me, you have to have just so many kind of axioms there that you should have updated in the past thirty years if you were paying attention. That even the Steelman version is pretty suspect to me. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, well, th- this is a, a key point of disagreement for us. I mean, because when we look at, at things like pronatalist policy, you know, what works is uh, poverty and low female educational attainment. Does that mean we want to endorse a policy of impoverishing people and forcing women to stay in the home and not go to school? Like, totally not. You know, we would prefer to find a way to build a future in which 
you you can allow there to be Alan Turing's and where there can be more female um, innovators because, you know, removing 50% of the population from the equation and stopping them from contributing to innovation and productivity if they want to contribute to us right, seems right. like I, a bad I think idea. Like, yeah, you're, you're assuming like... A- Maybe the audience would do this as well. I'm not sure you're incorrectly assuming this, but mm-hmm. I should I should clarify. Like I am not for the kind of once again I kind of disagree. My disagreements with the kind of dissident right are mostly on economics. Uh, I, I do think, yeah, like you're you're not going the economic cost. Like we're already facing right, like decivilization. If removing half of the labor force is just going to decivilize faster, and that yeah. is also you know that is also just extremely costly. I actually had the argument with Rocco Miech a few episodes ago at this point, like three or four episodes at this point, like uh, actually like, like what's interesting, right? Okay. Like this makes sense from my perspective, but I'm not sure it makes sense from your perspective, hmm. right? Like if 50% of people are just working bullshit or like if 80% of people are just working bullshit jobs, yeah, right? This is also something that Rocco thinks, right? Or like maybe not, not exactly that number, but he, he thinks that you can basically, you know, remove, he, he thinks that you can remove you know, women from the workforce without severe economic downsides. And like, to me, like some, if, if you believe that like 80% of people are working bullshit jobs, then like, that's something that's more favorable to you than it is for me, right? Someone who doesn't think that. Well, it's more that we want, we want people to be able to sort according to their proclivities. You know, I mean, when you had that argument with Tyler right. Cowen and he pointed out Alan Turing, you know, he wasn't saying that like, mm-hmm. you know, someone who is, you know, going to be a woke activist, um, isn't going to, you know, if not being a woke activist, going to become, you know, a nuclear submarine engineer, right? Like they're not going to go into the same place. So we just, we want optionality. Yeah. It's totally marginal, right? Yeah. We're we're all for that optionality. Um, and I'm also not saying like people in the home aren't good. And I'm also not saying that like, you know, women are the driving force of innovation. I mean, if we look at history and we also look at, you know, sort of average, differences in proclivities and tendencies between genders. Um, men are just more, it seems, um, on average, higher variance, higher risk, higher reward um, members of society who are probably more likely to drive society forward because they're more willing to take risks for various reasons, including hormonal reasons, than women on average, right? But I would still want like that crazy, strange, high testosterone or otherwise risk risk um of riskophilic woman to be able to go out there and invent something crazy when when she wants to um right right once again it's like the individual variants versus group variants mm-hmm. yeah like the top the top yeah like I, i'm not in disagreement with you here right like i i agree with you on that point that basically like the outliers should be able to should be able to actually exercise their abilities i disagree with the kind of yeah, with, with with the kind of basically absolutist version of this. Like, when I talk about basically, like, pro-natalist policy, a lot of it is, like, I, I do agree with you. Like, I've seen, you know, like, on the empirical case, on the, like, empirical measurements of, you know, stuff like Romania or stuff like Ch- the early results from Chinese policy, mm-hmm. right? This is something that is quite... That, that yeah i am quite pessimistic on um to me like the the battleground is more like mimetic 
Right. Totally, it's like, first of totally. all, you need to reset the kind of, st- you need to reset the legal incentives that, that incentivize the kind of sterilizing ideologies. Right. Um, those are right now supported through law. And you can say like, yeah. Yeah, like someone like Richard Hanania says, right? Like if you repeal the, those laws, right, you're not being, you're actually being more libertarian because you're, you're, you're repealing those things and you're resetting to neutral. I'm not so sure whether that reset to neutral is actually possible and whether it's not just better to have the state, you know, taking an official stance on something like their own two genders, right? Like that seems like something where, um, where the reset to neutral doesn't account for, say, you know, like corporate selection mechanisms, midwit cycle. I already talked about this before, right? Like competition on conformity, incentives for journalists, right? Those kind of equilibria. I do think the the kind of reset to neutral mentality is a losing equilibria there, but maybe we're drifting too far away from the main topics of conversation. I'll I'll let you have the last word on this and then uh, (laughs) we'll go on to the last few topics. Yeah, I think, I think, again, that largely we agree and where we disagree is on tactics. Like if Malcolm and I could just, you know, change things really quickly, culturally, we would take the emphasis off of hedonism and off of intragenerational well-being. And we would shift, um, you know, an interest in, in intergenerational well-being and on, you know, contributing to your family and to your culture and being a steward of it. Like just shift those cultural priorities. And you can. Um, you know, we, we lived in a culture, um, just, you know, maybe 60, 70 years ago that totally supported that. So we think it's, it, this is more, more, far more tractable and we don't have to take away porn or take away unique and interesting gender identities for this to be possible. It's more about deciding what it is we value and, and shifting, shifting away from very genetic, uh, like inbuilt, but poorly adapted to modern society tendencies toward laziness and aversion to pain and aversion to rejection and aversion to work. You know, we've been kind of jumping back and forth here, but maybe the tie is that they, they are seeing some kind of political influence, right? Like with Andrew Tate. Yeah. What do you think of the kind of incel movement? I know you mentioned this in the, in the prep notes. I, I find it really interesting. Um, and one thing, an epiphany that Malcolm had that really blew my mind was that there are female incels, but they're not the types of incels you would think about. Right, um, right. Like femme cells. Mm-hmm. I, I have no, this line that I post on I, Twitter. Well, I don't even know if it's femme cells as like the internet defines them. Um, so I think it goes back to adolescent drives that we, mm-hmm. we sort of parsed out after reading a, an article by Susie Weiss on Spoonies. Um, where like sort of key things happen during puberty. And it seems like men are more driven to have sex and get more sexual partners, whereas women are more driven to become desired and objects of desire. Um, so when you look at the male incel movement, it's still associated with that male onset adolescent drive to get more sexual partners and, you know, really extreme incels. Male incels will argue that like a government should intervene to provide sexual partners to males who are not able to get them on their own because it's sort of like a, you know, God given right. They need it for their basic well being. Um, and, you know, people tend to make the same mistake with female incels the way that they do with sexuality, 
Whereas like, you know, people think that both men and women are primary orient, primarily oriented sexually around gender when our research indicates that while men may be primarily se- sexually oriented around gender, women are primary, primarily sexually oriented around dominance. Um, and there's a similar thing with women, like a, a similar issue. So, so female incels aren't looking for sex. They're not trying to rack up sexual partners. They are trying to rack up being desired and being admired um, and, and being uh, treasured. And so we, Malcolm had this epiphany. He was like, oh my gosh, it's the Hayes movement, the healthy at any size movement. And a lot of the related right, movements right, yeah. were like, it's not that women need more sexual partners. Women, when they're deprived, when they're like the equal version of an incel, are, are not desired enough. Um, and it's interesting how both of these things are kind of non-consensual, right? Like, so male incels want people to have sex with them, even though they don't necessarily want to have sex with them. And, and female incels or in- equivalents want people to admire and think they're beautiful when, you know, people may not have an inbuilt tendency to think that, that certain, uh, certain stylings of a human, um, are, are inherently beautiful. And so they try to shape culture that way or they try to force it. So we just thought that was, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, and I mean, when it comes to like people like Andrew Tate um, and, and a bunch of other like, you know, pickup artist area, like related people, I think there's, there's this, it's, it's an interesting backlash to a lot of realism around lies that were told to us in childhood about, you know, what you have to do to either become admired um, either way. Right. So like men were told that if you're just nice to women and if you're the nice guy and if you're polite and you never ever push anything and you're not forward, um, yet you'll get partners and you'll be happy, which is totally not true. Um, are and men, then women are, men are told, actually told that. Um, I mean, I get the impression, at least in my generation, that was kind of the promise told that you, you have to be polite and you never make a move. And I, I from my dating experience, which was like short, but prolific. Cause I, I, you know, did a lot of high throughput screening. I went on as many dates competitively dating as I could. Cause I wanted my points. Um, yeah, man. Like, I mean, I know the guys who went on dates with me went on dates with me because they wanted to have sex with someone. Malcolm was the first person to bring up interest in sex. So like no one was being transparent and everyone was like totally directing themselves toward the friend zone, which is, is, is pretty bad. But in like, you know, in like the 1800s or in like, I don't know, like the 1500s were people honest about that? Like, is is this something that's new? I don't think so. In the, in the 1600s and the 1800s, there were shared social contracts where it was understood what certain things meant that, you know, if you got into a carriage unattended with a man, he would ravage you. Everyone knew that would happen. Like, you know, there are these things that were understood and expected. Whereas now, because we don't have shared social contracts anymore, that's a big problem when you tell people that. And similar lies were told to women. Women were told that you will be beautiful no matter what you look like. Um, and that's, that's not true. And so now we're seeing, I think Andrew Tate is very indicative of that kind of backlash of like, we've been told all these lies. Um, and then you see, you know, other really interesting figures that are taking very different approaches to it. Like, like BAP, Bronze Age, Bronze Age pervert, who, you know, is like, hey, let's wait, celebrate wait, wait, aesthetics wait again. Before and... we get on to BAP, before we get on to BAP, <laughs> I'm still skeptical. Maybe mm. this is just my bubble. But did anyone believe that? Like, oh, yeah. any, any man or woman, like, 
Oh yeah. That just seems so absurd to me. Like I, I just do not, I just do not no, think like, that no, that's believable I grew up at all. Steeped in this culture, I grew up believing that people would love me for who I was on the inside and think that I was beautiful for who I was on the inside. And I grew up with a lot of guys who believed all those things. And I, um, when I look back on all of the friends I had who were guys, um, and see how things played out with them, I, I discover that they probably were interested in me for very different reasons than I thought. Um, but I had no idea because they had no way of communicating that to me um, because they were not given those tools. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we're past that point and your generation was raised with a very different set of norms. Um, but at least where I grew up in Silicon Valley, definitely that was a, that was a big problem. And I, I think that these, these, um, these backlash movements make a lot more sense when consider when considered in that context. So they would seem stranger to you if you think per- people weren't actually raised that way. You know, I, I see it, right? I see it in public schools, right? I went to a public kind of magnet school. It was definitely there, you know, maybe because it was a magnet school and the people were, you know, pretty significantly above average intelligence. You know, none of us believed it. <laughs> um, like the, the teachers would say it, you know, we would, some of us would laugh. Some of us would say silence you know, yeah, no one believed it, you know, like, this isn't, but this doesn't feel like an IQ thing, right? This feels like, you know, you just observe, you know, you just look in front of you, what is happening, and you just notice that this is a false claim, right? Like, you do not need to be very smart to do that. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I went to high school and middle school before, like, pickup artistry was really meaningfully invented. I I think that maybe you grew up exposed to a lot more realism in dating and relationships than, than my generation was. And that I was not, I was not into that. Um, but I I also grew up in a very weird environment. You know, like people just, it's sort of like normalized in society, you know, like you would know. I grew up up in like, I grew up in like, you know, like some people, this is more of like European right-wingers, but like some right wingers will talk about like immigrant enclaves. Like immigrant enclaves are fucking great. You they know? are. They like are. I, I grew up in like okay, so like in the first half of my life, I mostly I lived in like a mostly Arab neighborhood, and in the nice. second half of my life, I lived in like a mostly Chinese neighborhood, and like yeah, the the, the dating scene was just so much better, better in both of them. Um, uh, although I guess I did not date in the first one, but I just you know I have friends who did. Right. Um, well, would you say that's because they had more shared social contracts because yeah, they were or like not even like shared social or like some of it was learned, right? Like I am not obviously not Arab. Um, some of it is learned. Yeah. I guess there is more commonality in general. Like actually I, I just like the idea that there's like no, no kind of left-wing social contract. I think there is. It's just dumb, right? Like there is left liberal culture. It is everywhere. It is total. And it is incredibly dumb and like counterproductive. Um, Yeah, like I I think that like, yeah, I I think that, you know, like the beliefs of basically like both the Arab culture and the Chinese culture and like basically like American conservative dating culture are, are just more correct. Yeah, no, you know? I, you're right. You're right. But that yeah, doesn't mean that so, a lot so of I people weren't yeah. steeped in leftist dating culture to start with, which is in very, very, very dysfunctional. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm just surprised at this because like, 
yeah, you just need to have eyes. Like you do not need to be that smart. It's like, it's like, you know, there's this idea, you know, like there's this claim that like people are, are attracted to people of any size. It's like, and then you look, you looked at revealed preferences. You know, like you ask your friend, like, are you attracted to these people? Or are you like yourself attracted to these people? Or, you know, are your parents attracted to these people? I can't people? emphasize like, enough how, how much, if you grow in that culture, it's, it's like this weird mind control virus. Like you really don't feel like you're allowed to believe certain things. Like the, my mind was blown when I met Malcolm and he told me, like, or basically showed to me that it was okay for me to hold my own beliefs that were different from like the progressive official talking points. Like I, I, I literally, I cannot tell you how, how much my life was built around that indoctrination. It was like leaving a cult. So, right, it, right. I, and you, you just like, you can say like, Oh, like being in this like weird death cult. It's so weird. All these people believe like the world was going to end when like, you know, like the prediction came to pass. And, but, but like when you grow up in a cult, that's all, you know, like you can see reality play out differently in front of you, but you can't see it. Cause it, it's like, you're a muggle, you know, like you can't see the magic. You just, it just goes right over your head. I, I just don't know how else to put it. Yeah, I guess this is also individual differences. Hmm. Yeah, I am. I am like an extremely disagreeable person. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That, yeah, I guess also that, and also growing up in a kind of, you know, th- this is funny, right? This is usually when people say, you know, you grew up in a conservative culture. It does not mean you know neighborhoods of Chinese and Arabs. <laughs> but yeah, uh, okay, so. We're running close to the end of time. Uh, there are two questions I want to ask. Number one is I want to ask you to give a recommendation, a piece of media. Um, that This is also just because I want to recommend something to you, which I think you will really enjoy. Mm. But uh, go ahead. You give, you give yours first. Obviously, I'm recommending The Pragmatist's Guide to Life relationships sexuality governance and grafting religion oh yeah all, all of your books i'll put in the intro as well oh, so, so the, the, yeah the, those will be recommended by default but yeah. would you like to have something that is not written by you and malcolm if it's not um, written by me um i i just always recommend to people policy paradox by deborah stone i recommend it to you as well because especially when you think about things like oh let's ban this or let's ban that or maybe we could build a better society by putting down blanket policy shifts just it's always it's so much more complicated than you would think right right uh yeah okay so the recommendation i have for you at some point you know probably not but at some point i will release another episode with angie which has just been stuck in the kind of stuck in limbo for forever um but uh if you've not heard that yet, you know, if my audience has not heard that yet by that time, uh, then this will be the first time you're hearing this recommendation. Uh, this is, I think, specifically, you know, if you enjoyed Malcolm and Simone's uh, practice guide to, to uh, sex and sexual, or not sex, sexuality, uh, to relationships, you will enjoy uh, this video, um, Kasaneteku, a Japanese girl's strategy, um, which is very funny and uh maybe exemplifies some of the uh some of the topics in in the book okay i will i will link this to you i'll link this in the notes and i'll also give this to you after we're done but uh 
I can't wait. Last to check question that of out. the show. Last question of the show. What is something that has too much order and needs more chaos? Something that has too much chaos and needs more order that we have not talked about yet. Definitely, the universe needs more chaos. We love chaos. We love the the invention and newness that comes out of it, and we feel like the the ultimate evil is an ordered, stagnant, cold, dead universe. Um, but when it comes to order, I feel like, man, the human body could deal with a lot more order. I mean, so many of the problems we discussed in this whole, this whole conversation relates to a chaotic and messily naturally evolved human body that is also besides just super freaking disgusting. I mean, have you pooped recently? Because, oh God, like, no. So let us all become transhuman cyborgs and have much more ordered bodies and embark on a future with a much more chaotic universe. Oh my goodness. Um, you heard it here, folks, guys. A cyborg theocracy for the win. Yes. Um, this, is, this is not endorsed by me. Um, because cyborg you're wrong. theocracy for the win. Okay. Uh, that is the end of the show. Thanks for coming on, Simone. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my episode with Simone Collins. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can always subscribe for another great episode every single Monday. As well, if you'd like to help the show, you can recommend it to a friend, you can leave a positive review on any podcasting app, or you can comment and suggest some future guests for the show. As always, see you next Monday for another great episode.